Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. There's got to be a morning after If we can hold on through the night We have a chance to find the sunshine Let's keep on looking for the light Oh, can't you see the morning after It's waiting right outside the storm Why don't we cross the bridge together And find the place that's safe and warm Richard, let me grab a tissue here. That was The Morning After, the chart-topping and Academy Award-winning song by Maureen McGovern. It was written for the 1972 film The Poseidon Adventure, and that's available on Apple Music. Just yeah, that's that, so sad. That, that song will bring tears to people's eyes, I'm sure. <laughs> I used to love that song. Big hit was always playing on the radio about that. It was, yeah, back, back in the day, yeah, it was. Back in... Uh, the pre-disco 1970s. 70s is a very interesting decade musically. You can go with the early 70s, the hippie music, the folk music, and by the late 70s, you're either at the disco or you're starting to go urban cowboy. And a very interesting era for disaster movies, which is what this episode is all about. Not only the Poseidon Adventure from 1972, but Earthquake from 1974. Yes. And Airport 77. Richard, what year is Airport 77 from? Well, you know, considering that Airport 75 was in 75 and Airport 79, the Concorde, was in 79, I'm going to go with 77. I believe that's right. I I checked the IMDb and that's right. Welcome, everybody, to the Classic Horrors Club podcast. This is episode 54. I'm Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club. And I'm Richard Chamberlain from kccinephile.com and monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. For our watchers on YouTube, let's say hello. Hello! Just a little tip, you might want to strap yourselves in because the video companion this month is is going to be quite a wild ride. I am looking forward to it. A little bird told me what we might be expecting and I think it sounds awesome. Let's call the, you know what we haven't done lately is call the meeting to order and bang the gavel. So let's do that. Let's do that. All right. Old business. We have some new members. Let's do the roll call. We have Samantha McCullough, Vincent Simonelli, Chris Cooling, Tim Elliott, and Yuri Nagelkirke. Apologies to any (laughs) mispronunciations there. We had a couple of doozies there. Absolutely. As always, if we've mispronounced your name, the challenge is out to you to call in and let us know how to pronounce it. What does it mean that they're a member when I say they're new members? That means that they joined our face. He caught me off guard with that. They joined our Facebook page, the Classic Horrors Club podcast page. And if you are on Facebook, you too can become a member. It's pretty easy. The screening process is 
fairly painless. <laughs> There's a blood screening and, and uh, you know, you have to have three references. But once you get past all of that, and as long as you're wearing a mask, you can join the club. That's or right. just send us a, a request and 99.9% of the time, we're going to accept you unless you're some Russian model who has five friends chances are you're probably not going to get accepted. But thank you for taking the time out to reach out to us. That's one way that we communicate with our club members. The other is by vocal recorded feedback, which you can leave by calling our voicemail number, 616-649-2582. 616-649-CLUB. Thank you, lovely. Good that we're doing disaster movies because I think you shattered some glass around here, but... Wow. Wow. Hurtful. That hurts. And we don't have any of that feedback, by the way, for this episode. Who knows? Maybe we'll have some last minute call-ins and we'll include that. We kind of put the the message out there. Of course, we always announce what movies we're going to do so people can theoretically watch and leave some feedback in advance, kind of participate in the discussion. Jonathan, for example, our friend we know likes 70s disaster movies. He went through a period of watching them. So I'm hoping, and if he does is able to contribute before we're done editing. We'll insert that right here. You know, he's moving, so chances are slim, but you never know. Maybe once the episode comes out, he can call us before the next episode. doesn't matter if you're six months behind or two years behind. We want to hear what you have to say. As I said last time, if you've got thoughts on Day of the Triffids, King Kong, or any of the movies from start to finish, we want to hear from you. Let us know. Yes. It's Jonathan. I hope you can hear me. I am outside. Uh, I am running to the supermarket. <laughs> you have to steal time where you can. So in this commute to the supermarket, I thought you'd leave, a quick, leave you guys a quick voicemail. I know you're doing a disaster episode, so I thought I'd chime in. This past summer, Yasmin and I watched uh, three disaster films. Uh, we watched Earthquake, Airport, and, oh God, what's the other one? Earthquake airport oh and and um the towering inferno of course enjoyed them all i would say earthquake definitely had the wonkiest and kind of just most nonsensical of the scripts i saw and i usually don't scrutinize scripts that closely but in this one it really stood out but fun nonetheless some great miniature work charleston charleston has been being super hestony um and you had that walter Matthau just I, I, I don't know what that was, that scene. I'm sure there's a story behind that. There's got to be uh, when he's just drunk uh, in the bar as the city's coming down around him. Kind of funny, very strange, which I'm fine with. Um, and Victoria Principal, which I didn't even recognize her. That was, that was an interesting role for her. Carrying Inferno uh, was great. That was probably our favorite. You had a, you know, star-studded cast that a lot of these films had. Incredible effects. I love the effects in that film. And just had a little bit of everything. I would definitely say that was our was our favorite. Um, I know this backstory between Paul Newman and uh, Steve McQueen on set, I hear. Some bit of a rivalry, maybe, or at least a rivalry between their, their entourages. <laughs> at least that's what I've heard. That's a wonderful film. That kind of has everything we're looking for in a, in a disaster film. And then you have Airport, which I had never seen. The others I had seen before... But not airport, and I know these airport disaster films are almost like a subgenre of disaster films. But yeah, I had a blast watching it. It's 
real sense of humor, some real, um, yeah, real, really great comic moments. And you had George Kennedy, and George, right, George Kennedy uh, is always a blast since he's in the airplane films, which I know are listening on these, and he's an earthquake, come to think of it. And we thought, we know there are at least three sequels to Airport, and we're going to wait until COVID is over and we can watch him with Yasmin's dad because he was a pilot for about 30 years. He, re- he flew for Royal Jordanian Airlines, among others, and we just thought it'd be fun to watch. And, you know, he was flying. I think he fly- started flying around 1970, which is, I think, right around when these films started to be to be made. So I know 70s was the heyday of these, you know, epic disaster films. It's interesting how they all begin with kind of a jaunty, soaring score until all hell breaks loose later in the film, but that's also kind of kind of interesting. So we think we're going to make this an annual thing. Maybe every summer we watch at least maybe a trilogy of, of um, disaster films. I have some thoughts about this year. Poseidon Adventure, um, I've seen many times, but Yasmin's never seen it, so I think she'll She'll really enjoy that one. Maybe I was thinking the Andromeda Strain too, a different kind of disaster, biological, uh, possibly alien disaster. Uh, I think it's a great film. Uh, another of Robert Weiss showing Robert Weiss's I don't know, just just ability to direct any kind of genre he wants. And then I'm thinking something neither of us had seen. Like I heard about um, Roller Coaster, um, some kind of crime thriller, I believe, where in which a roller coaster. <laughs> Uh, you know, plays prominently into the story. So that's what I'm thinking. There's so many others, but I think there are so many disaster films that we can more than carry over into into the next several summers. Oh, and I should mention, there is a fourth honorable mention from this past summer, well, more of the fall, was um, Earth, um, oh God, Avalanche. Um, but this was the Mystery Science Theater version, the one they did in the more recent, the Gauntlet, the more recent version of MST3K. I, I, I did really enjoy it. Jonah and uh, the bots riffing on this one. Yes, we enjoyed it too. So I guess you can count that as well. So yeah, so that's uh, that's that. But I'm really glad that you guys are covering these because they're just so much fun. Also, in other news, uh, I finally hit the 300th episode of, of um, Dark Shadows. It's going well. It switched the color for a couple episodes and went back to black and white and then back to color. It's very strange. Maybe Jeff can fill me in on why it's you know, why the episodes are being rolled out to you that way. And there's also a character by the name of Julia Hoffman, I believe, when I know she's a pretty, you know, she's a very significant character from the show. I have to say, her first maybe dozen or so performances were very stiff and kind of stilted. And I know she's this great character that everyone seems to, you know, she really made an impression on fans. I think she gets better as she goes. Yeah, so we'll continue on Dark Shadows. Um, you know, I am really enjoying it. You know, 300 episodes, it feels like at least a somewhat significant dent. And I know so much, so much. There are so many storylines to come and other monsters. I believe there's a werewolf that's going to make an appearance. But anyway, and besides that, we're all moved. We moved, as you guys know, offline. We've chatted a lot. and We moved to a new apartment, which we're much happier in. And we're just getting settled and unpacking. Stella took her a couple of nights. She was a little, didn't sleep well the first couple of nights. Poor thing was confused, but now she's settled in and loves, loves the new place. So that's really good. Yeah. And uh, I think that's all I got for now. I will, like I, as I always say, I'll try to call in more frequently. Keep up the great work as always. And I'm really looking forward to your uh, disastrous uh, episode coming up. I'm sure it'll be a hoot. Thanks guys. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.
Hey, Rich. Hey, Jeff. This is Christopher Page from over at the Time Shifters Podcast and Morphin Entertainment Podcast. First of all, excuse the, what may be echoey audio. I'm doing this from a different computer than I normally would, but I wanted to do this while I was thinking of it because I've been meaning to do it for a while, so I'm doing it now. I wanted to talk about your last episode where you talked about Genesis 2, Planet Earth, and Strange New World. I thought I had watched all three of these. Turns out I'd only seen Genesis 2. Uh, so I, I corrected it. After hearing you guys talk about it, I went and dug up Planet Earth, and I dug up the Strange New World. And, um, yeah, I kind of have to agree with you there that the Planet Earth was definitely the stronger of the three. I like Genesis 2, but, yeah, Planet Earth had the better story. Um, definitely the better cast. Uh, John Saxon is really hard to beat. I did notice something interesting about the story. It was obviously some sort of reaction to, like, the women's lib that was in the uh, late 60s and early 70s. But it was yet kind of complementary to it and also a backhanded and still in a sort of way. Because the whole idea is, you know, this Amazon culture where the women make all the rules and the men are subservient. And that to me kind of felt like someone saying, well, women's lib, see what happens if you take it too far. This is what you're going to get. But at least in the story anyway, no one came in and said at the end, see, isn't it better that if men are in charge, they really did push the whole let's all be equal and make decisions together. So I did like that. But still, the the basic premise I still thought maybe was a little, mm-hmm, yeah. Anyway, uh, Strange New World. Yeah, I looked up that muddy YouTube copy which I'm guessing is probably the only way to see it. Or did you guys say that there might have been a DVD or something? I wouldn't waste the money on it. Uh, even if you could see it better, the story is just not there. I don't even think I finished it. I, I think I got bored. I'm trying to dig this something up because I know I read it somewhere. I saw this in a book, but apparently it's a book I no longer own. But you mentioned the Vesta Explorer, the, the vehicle that they were using to navigate the uh, the new earth that they find themselves in that was was cool what was really neat it was nothing like arc 2 or any or damnation alley or any other of the really cool large full scale vehicles that you're comparing it to because apparently this thing was like smaller than a minivan it was like the size of like a golf cart it was like a scale a working sort of scale model so I thought that's really cool. It was just some sort of a, a box they put on one of those all-terrain club car kind of things. Uh, I wish I could find the book to find this. If you actually go back, if you at least watch the very beginning of the video, I wouldn't watch any more than that. But if you go back and watch the scenes where you do see it, if you look really close, you kind of can get the – if you know – you, I think you can get the feeling and get the, uh, the the right impression of like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it is. The scale is just not quite right with everything else around it. So still it was a cool idea. And maybe if it had gone to series, they would have uh, actually built a full scale something. But as, as it was, yeah, it was just a you know one guy in a, in a box driving along in a field. Anyway, I wanted to make that comment. I wish I could have found the source. I hope I'm not, it's, this isn't something I just dreamt up. I'm pretty sure that I did read it. Thanks very much. Always enjoy your show. Talk to you later. This episode's, I feel like we're always saying it's a little bit different, but the, the format's the same as usual. However, we're going to sort of a different subgenre, and that's disaster films. 
as I said last time, nothing more horrific than natural disaster, terrorist attacks, planes sinking to the bottom of the ocean. So I think it's totally appropriate. Plus, they're just great fun movies, and I want to talk about them. We well, have the ability to do that. It's our show. And it's your birthday month, so you chose the topic. But we've been talking about this for a while, and you know... There's that umbrella, and then you've got all these little subgenres and stuff. And so, yeah, it kind of kind of is on the edge of, of horror films. Some disaster films fall a bit more into that category than others. Uh, I recently sat down and watched probably 45 minutes of 2012, which is, there is no such thing as a guilty pleasure. But I know that that movie, of course, we were all supposed to die in 2012, and that didn't quite happen. I guess the Mayan calendar was off about maybe eight years or so. Uh, <laughs> that's a movie I love. I, I love seeing basically everything collapse. And I think two nights ago, actually, I watched about a half an hour of the day after tomorrow. I enjoy the heck out of that as well. So I like that one. Yeah. So those are a bit more, a bit more sci-fi in in a, in a way, but still just as enjoyable. Disaster flicks. They either are rooted in reality or they're a little out there. And honestly, all three of these movies, they're not that far out there. And in fact, you might be some of you might be saying, oh, come on, the Poseidon going upside down. Not as far fetched as you might think. And we'll be talking about that in a moment. Great, great. Well, I thought we could start off with a little history of the disaster film. I did some research and I want to share two of the books that helped me with this. One is called Catastrophe, The End of Cinema. It is by David Annan. And this is actually published in 75. So it's interesting. This was like at the peak of the disaster movie. I think 74 was the peak when the most number of them came out. A good number had not even been released by the time. And it's a pretty thin volume. The other one, and I just love this. The stewardess is flying the plane. (laughs) This is not just disaster movies. It's American films of the 70s by Ron Hogan. But this is just an awesome book. Uh, All kinds of movies that came out in the 70s. And it's uh, one of those with maybe not a lot of text, but a lot of cool graphics and fun information about the movies. And this, the stewardess is flying the plane. I mean, that's about as definitive a description of that era as you can yet because disaster movies were so prevalent. And that, of course, is from Airport 75, for those listeners out there who don't know what that reference is to, with Karen Black, who always just looks so distressed, I think, in any movie she's ever in. You know, whether she's her plane is crashing or she's being chased by a Zuni fetish doll. That poor gal just, <laughs> she, she's through the ringer in most of her movies. Yeah. So the disaster movie really has been with us almost since the beginning of cinema, in one way or another. Technically, if you're categorizing movies, I believe they say the disaster movie is a subgenre of action. But we talked about how oftentimes they can lean towards sci-fi. They could be natural disasters. They could be man-made disasters. Depends what you want to call a disaster movie. You... In the 50s with sci-fi, you know, things like Godzilla, War of the Worlds, those could be considered a disaster movie. The particular kind of disaster movie we're going to talk about in the 70s has a distinct cookie-cutter structure to it. We'll talk about that when we get there. But 
I wanted to just run by some of the early disaster movies. The, the first one I read about in these books was from 1901. It was a short called Fire. It's about a house that was burning down and the fire department came and put it out. I mean, that's the kind of film, early films were that. They were just capturing, you know, real events. Yeah. So that's kind of interesting. All through uh, cinematic history, movies about the Titanic have been popular. There's numerous of them. And there were way back in the 1910s, two movies about Titanic were made. And then the first, like really... I'll say substantial movie that I've seen that's considered a disaster movie is Deluge from 1933. I know you've seen that. Yes. Uh, it's about a big, well, a tidal wave hits, but an earthquake there's, starts it, right? There's earthquakes and tidal waves and it's apocalyptic and then it delves into post-apocalyptic. Yep. It's on Blu-ray from Kino Lorber, I believe. Yep. Well worth checking out if you haven't seen it. This movie was unavailable for a lot of years and uh, now of course it's easily available and, and well worth checking out yep so we've had movies in in the past about volcanoes the last days of pompeii in 1935 hurricanes the hurricane from 1937 earthquake the big san francisco earthquake so we're bringing history in here it was made in 1936 and then the chicago fire uh, a movie called old chicago from 1937 in the 40s and 50s, at least four movies about the Titanic, different names. We had one in 43, 53, and then in 1958, A Night to Remember, which is possibly one of the better known movies about the Titanic. And I can't count, that's only three, not four. As I mentioned in the 50s, the Atomic Age, they started getting a sci-fi twist to them. Besides Godzilla, War of the Worlds, When Worlds Collide is another one. One in 1960 called The Last Voyage, which is not about the Titanic, but it's a similar uh, ship that has a disaster in the sea. Sort of a sub-sub-genre of the disaster movie is things that take place in an airplane. We had several of those in 1954, The High and the Mighty, 1957, Zero Hour. Have you ever seen that? Isn't that an inspiration for... Yeah, yeah. yeah. I have not. I have not. Yeah, I watched that new not too long ago. It was enjoyable, but that yeah, that's like very similar to the '70s airport movies. Two movies in 1959, Jet Storm and Jet Over the Atlantic, were about you know disasters on airplanes or sabotage attempts. The Crowded Sky in 1960 and the Doomsday Flight in 1966. That brings us to the 1970s, the golden age of the disaster movie. And the first one out of the gate was Airport in 1970. And that set the template really for the 1970s disaster movie. And that's primarily huge cast, multiple plot lines, usually recognizable actors, sometimes character actors, sometimes a collection of award-winning actors all in one place. Sometimes you think they're kind of doing it for the money, for the paycheck. They're kind of at that point in their career. They're not winning Academy Awards anymore. Other times it kind of boosts their career being part of an all-star cast. And I know cast members have taken those roles because it allowed them to work with some of these award-winning actors. One other movie I want to mention, it was called Skyjacked from 1972. And I was saying earlier, I don't think I've ever seen Airport, but I remember seeing Skyjacked. Uh, at the uh, trail drive-in in Enid, Oklahoma. 
It's the only time I've seen it. I don't remember much about it. I would have been, what, nine or ten. But I remember at the time liking it, <laughs> whatever that's worth. So that brings us up to 1972 and the Poseidon Adventure. That was released on December 13th, 72. It was from 20th Century Fox, and it was an Irwin Allen production. Richard, I bet you probably could tell us a little bit, bit about Irwin Allen. Well, obviously, uh, you know, 1960s, Irwin Allen was highly prolific on television. Lost in Space, right? That was one of his kind of stepping stones into a uh, whole series of, of sci-fi shows. I think Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, I'm trying to remember, that may predate Lost in Space by a year, maybe. You've got the Time Tunnel, Land of the Giants. I found it interesting, though, that, and I didn't realize this, actually, this one kind of a couple years ago when I was doing the uh, Marx Brothers movies, I'm not sure that I caught this. I might have. I can't remember. But he actually did some Marx Brothers movies or Groucho Marx movies in hmm. the 50s. Two Groucho Marx uh, solo films, A Girl in Every Port and Double Dynamite. Girl in Every Port has Groucho with William Bendix from Life of Riley fame and Double Dynamite. He's paired up with Frank Sinatra. And Erwin uh, Allen also did uh, the very disastrous story of mankind. It's not a disaster flick, but the movie is a disaster. Tons of cameos. Vincent Price plays the devil, which you'd say, oh my gosh, that's great. No, 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 it is not. Uh, it's a crazy courtroom scenario where mankind is put on trial and they look at man through the ages and Groucho, Harpo, and Chico have three cameo sequences. Harpo plays Sir Isaac Newton, while also playing a harp, I believe. And... Uh, <laughs> Chico has got a weird scene where he's with a uh, where he's with uh, like a, a monk or something, and uh, Groucho. I, oh gosh, what he's he's like with Lewis and Clark or something. It's just it's it's bad. Yeah, I mean, Roman Allen is is well known in sci-fi, and in the seventies, he kind of was also known for the disaster flicks. He was he was kind of reinvented himself in a way, and and uh, depending on what circle you're in, he's either. Mr. Sci-Fi or Mr. Uh, Mr. Disaster. I mean, Towering Inferno is arguably the the, the best quality-wise of these movies. He also did a bunch of TV movies, uh, disaster areas. He did Flood in 76, Fire in 77. Then uh, it will talk about what happens at the end of the, the 70s. The quality definitely started going down. We had The Swarm in 1978. Then Irwin Allen turned director, and he directed Beyond the Poseidon Adventure in 1979 and When Time Ran Out in 1980. If there's a joke good enough to tell once, there's it's good enough to tell twice, so I'll tell it now and later, and I guess it's not really a joke. But When Time Ran Out really is sort of the last of this era, and time had run out for the disaster film of the 70s. <laughs> it was interesting that, you know, Irwin Allen had opportunities to go back and revisit Lost in Space. They talked about doing a Lost in Space reunion in the 80s. He was very controlling. And it was kind of like, if he, if it wasn't his idea, you know, then he didn't want to do it. There's several stories out there where um, Billy Mooney, who played Will Robinson specifically, he had a, a, an idea to do a you know, Lost in Space reunion in the 80s, which would have been fabulous to see 
because most of the cast would have been in the movie with the exception of Guy Williams. And I think that they would have explained that John Robinson had passed, but I mean, it was an idea where Judy and, and Don West had married. They had a kid. Dr. Smith had kind of gone senile, but Jonathan Harris, you know, was on board to do it. Apparently when the idea was presented to Irwin Allen, he just wanted nothing to do with it and got <laughs> very upset that he said, well, you know, Boston Space is mine. It's not yours. You are just a cast member. This is my show. And, you know, it never, never really got made. Eventually the rights, and I think, I'm not even sure, I'm trying to remember if Irwin Allen was alive when the 90s Lost in Space movie came out. I can't recall. Ultimately, they totally missed the boat on doing a reunion, which I think is what Lost in Space fans wanted to see. They didn't really want to see a remake. I know the recent Netflix series has kind of had mixed reactions from people. Yeah, there's some other stories about Irwin Allen being very territorial. You know, it's interesting talking about Irwin Allen and then the, the other one we'll talk about later with the airport movies. You could almost say these 70s disaster movies with their large cast. I mean, it's the producer's job to put a movie together and to wrangle all those people and make the deal for them. These are really producer movies. I mean, obviously actor movies, but I mean, I defy you to think of any of these movies just off the top of your head and tell me who directed them. I mean, these are producer movies. Are held together by the producer and the cast, really. I mean, the story to an extent, but really, you know, you're there for the eye candy, who's the cast, and to a lesser extent, what the story is. I would also argue that the disaster really is interchangeable especially in the 70s, you've, you've got this format, you've got the introduction of the characters and perhaps there's a warning that something's coming or it's the preparation for what's coming. Then you have the actual disaster and then you have the aftermath with either trying to survive or trying to escape or live. And in those three sections differ in some of the movies on what the focus is. Some really focus on the disaster. Some really focus on the aftermath. Sometimes the disaster is the very first thing, and then you learn about the characters after. But pretty much they all have it, and I think you could pretty safely say, on one hand, it doesn't matter what the disaster is, you've got that same formula that that all of these movies used. We started talking about Poseidon. Let's take a break. We haven't done the trailer or the synopsis or anything. Uh, Let's do that, and we'll come right back and talk more about Poseidon Adventure.
That's the way out. That's our only chance. Don't listen to him! We've got to stay here till help arrives. Help from where? From the captain? He's dead. somewhere you're not going? Hold it. Do you know what a flash fire is? Well, mister, I'm not going to let you kill us. I'm going through that door, Mr. Rogo. You need to stand aside and close that door to keep the air from coming in, or you can try to stop me. Midnight on New Year's Eve, the SS Poseidon, en route from New York to Athens, met with disaster and was lost. There were only a handful of survivors. This is their story. Where would you like to start, Richard? I know we liked all of these movies to a certain degree. I believe, though, to me, this is the most substantial of them. If, And I mean that just... As far as, you know, the uh, the box office, the awards that came from it, the inspiration for remakes and sequels, I think this is the, probably the meatiest of the three movies. So there's a lot to talk about. And I think you also look at like, you know, what's been remade. There's three things that have come, either sequels or remakes from this. And what holds up the, the best and, and of these three movies, this is the one that I think very much so held up. Uh, there's not a lot in this movie that is dated, really. I mean, the music sequence a little bit is, is dated, but for the most part, I mean, I think what you see in this film clearly, I mean, I think that's why it's been remade a couple of times is that the story overall uh, holds up. You know, as we get into earthquakes and, you know, airline disasters, I think those to one degree or another don't hold up quite as well, whether it's from a special effects or just from what movies are, are popular now. I mean, airplane movies had their day in the 70s and, and really, you know, although a handful of air, airplane movies have been out since then, they're not really usually exclusively airplane. There may be a sequence I think the Poseidon Adventure, yeah, we're starting out right out of the gate and, and one that very much holds up in, in 2021. 
Yeah, and I think, I know I just, I'm contradicting myself because I just said the disasters are interchangeable, but this one is a little unique and it's clever. It's, you know, the, sh- the ship turns upside down. So what do you do? You don't go to the top of the ship to get out. You go to the bottom. And that's, yeah. that's interesting. Well, I think from the get-go, I mean, people might say, well, come on, that, that, you know, could that really happen? Well, the, the movie is based on a novel by Paul Gallico, and it's inspired by a couple of real-life events aboard the Queen Mary. He was on board the Queen Mary, and there was a, an incident where they were hit by uh, a really big wave, and it rocked the heck out of the boat. You know, it didn't tip over, it didn't capsize, flip upside down, but it was a harrowing experience and it was an inspiration for him to write the novel, as well as, again, on the Queen Mary back in World War II. They were carrying uh, soldiers and got hit by a really big tidal wave that did nearly capsize it and and flip it over. Um, Experts at the time said another five inches would have been all it would have taken. They said it was that close that it, it was on the verge of, of, of tipping over. Interesting, Queen Mary twice. It's kind of like, I don't know, the, the uh, voyage of the dam there for Queen Mary. You know, it's kind of interesting that uh, it happened twice. Interesting, though, I mean, you know, that this is not as far-fetched as it might initially seem. And they filmed some scenes on the Queen Mary and just... FYI, I've been to the Queen Mary. We, my family took a trip in the 70s to Los Angeles and Hollywood and everything and did the Universal Tour and all that. And we went to the Queen Mary. So it's kind of cool. Where's the Queen Mary at now? It's uh, They moved it, didn't they? Did they move it? I don't know if it's still. I have I've not been on the Queen Mary. I, I've been to California not too many years ago. But that wasn't a stop that we made. So I, it is, it's haunted too, isn't it? Supposedly, I think that that ghost hunters did a couple of things mm-hmm. from from there. So if you believe in such things, but well, why don't we start and just talk about the cast and, and the characters? Like we said, we get all these disparate people put in one place uh, before the disaster, and I'm going to do a, a count. Well, not a countdown, but sort of a timing in on each of these movies on how long it is between when the movie starts and when the disaster actually happens. I want to and, add real quick though, oh. you know, one thing we normally do in, in our episodes is that we will, you know, as we list the actors, we will list all the movies that they appeared in folks between these three <laughs> movies, the cast and then the list of actors who almost appeared in the film. We've never had a roll call like, like we're having in this episode. I, there's no way we ever will again. So all of these three films are, are they're, they're star-studded. There's just so many people, A-list actors and, and character actors and everything in between. So we will talk about some of the movies, but we're not going to do it like we normally do because we've never reached the four-hour mark yet, on the show <laughs> and it's not going to happen in 2021. But it would if we did that for this one. That's my disclaimer. And I think also we should say with this many characters and with disasters, there's going to be some deaths now and then. And I think we're going to have to do spoilers because some yes. of those deaths are so spectacular. We have to talk about those. Yeah, so, we, have, we have to talk about them. So if you no, have spoiler alert, any of these movies, they are all available on Amazon Prime for rent. Unfortunately, not part of Amazon Prime, 
But uh, and then we'll talk about their availability. But they're out there, so hit pause, <laughs> block off about what six seven hours, hours? <laughs> seven hours at least, depending which version of the film you're watching, and then come back. You won't be spoiled. There you go. So Captain Harrison Leslie Nielsen is driving, piloting, whatever, in charge of the Poseidon. However, it has a new owner, Lenarcos, played by Fred Sadoff, who is actually an actor I don't know. He, he's on board representing the new owner of, the, air, of the, the boat. It's nearing the end of its run. It's kind of old, but he's like full steam ahead. No matter what's happening, we got to get this ship in, into dock. So he's sort of the bad guy. He's the one that is going to go against logic and against science or common sense and say, hey, we've got to go forward no matter what. Early on, we meet a precocious young boy named Robin, played by Eric Shea. We don't see a lot of it, but he has been hanging around the crew, and he knows a lot about the boat. Hint, that's going to come in very helpful later to have him amongst the survivors because he knows that ship in and out from what he's been told. His sister is Susan Shelby, played by Nancy Drew, Pamela Sue Martin. They're on their way to meet their parents. I, now this ship is going to where? Greece or Crete? You just said, and I don't remember. Uh, Athens, Greece, yes. So I assume their parents are there. They get a cable from them while they're on the, the ship, and uh, they're going to meet their parents. We have Mike Rogo, played by Ernest Borgnine. He's the tough ex-detective, and he's married to a former lady of the night, Linda, played by Stella Stevens. She's a henpecking wife. This relationship will be repeated in, a, in one of the movies we talk about later. They're constantly at each other's throats. They truly do love each other, though. There is some, some henpecking, but I, I do think that she, she certainly does care for him. She doesn't like the, the jealousy that he has. He's Ernest Borgnine, and he's he's got this attractive wife, so that's why he's jealous. So, and being that he's a cop, and that's how they met. He he was arresting her to keep her off the streets. Yes. So that's where his jealousy comes in. And I think she appreciates that because when he reminds yeah. her of that, there's a sort of a look, or it kind of shifts her tone to a more loving tone. Because so I think he admitted, yeah, that that's what he was doing because he was wanting to keep her safe and keep her off the streets. And I don't think that he'd, he'd ever admitted that before. Yeah. She definitely looked like she, she loved that when she heard that. We have Manny Rosen played by Jack Albertson and his wife, Belle played by Shelly Winters. They are on the way to meet their two-year-old grandson for the first time. She is a little overweight. She's m- maybe more conscious about her weight than she actually is overweight. She's not spelt by any means, but She's a champion swimmer, and that's going to come in very handy later on, especially when the boat is underwater. I say that it had been a long time since I've seen this one. This is not a first-time viewing, but again, more than 30 years. I was prepared for irritating Shelley Winters. She was actually really good in this movie. I, could, I did not remember her performance at all, but I was very pleasantly surprised at how well she did. And actually, Carla was too. Carla hates... Shelly Winters, nagging Shelly Winters even more than I do. And she came across, and, and Carla said the same things. Like, she was really good in this. So She was the only actor to be nominated for an Oscar, and she it's a very touching performance. I 
I mentioned this when we did an episode and talked about Shelly Winters, that this to me is her signature role. Well, you mentioned her weight. She she gained weight for the for this movie and never did lose it. And she complained about that. She's like she could never lose the weight that she gained for this movie. In fact, she gained more as as later years would go on. But really, by today's standards, you know, she was being called so fat and overweight, or you know, other characters. Yeah. I'm like twenty twenty one standards, not at all. So interesting how times change. James Martin is played by Red Buttons. He's a confirmed bachelor and a haberdasher, which is what a hat seller, right? Yes. Which apparently is a very, very taxing business that allows you no personal time at all, which uh, he claims is why he's not married. I have my other suspicions, but it never goes there. So we don't know. Yeah. Reverend Scott played by Gene Hackman. He is the, the, the star of the movie. He yeah. will lead the band of survivors through, and he's got an interesting character. He's sort of a rebel in the church, uh, that he's a reverend. They have sent him to Africa sort of to, to banish him, but he's excited yeah. about it. He says that's where he will have the freedom to discover God on his own terms. He does a little sermon on the ship and it's a little different. It's he's telling people don't pray to God to solve your problems pray to that part of God within you. When I heard that, I actually heard my dad in my head. Really? My dad was a deacon. That was one of his things. He said, don't pray to God for miracles. Don't pray to God to get you out of this mess that you're in. Pray to God to give you the strength to work your way through it. A little different than Gene Ackman's message, but it was the same thing as like, don't pray for God and say, hey, help me out here, get me off this ship that's turned upside down. My dad always would say, pray for the strength to help you get through this. You're, this, you're at, you are where you are, so all you need is to get through it. That was When he was kind of doing that, I heard my dad's voice in oh. my head. So. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know how controversial that was at the time, but uh, presenting the opposing side is uh, it's just called the chaplain, Arthur O'Connell. He's more traditional and they have some interesting conversations, sort of theology light, I suppose, but it, it's definitely that there's a, he's more traditional and conservative in his beliefs. I think in the time period, I mean, from a religious perspective, yeah, it was probably somewhat controversial, but for those outside of organized religion, there was a growing movement, the late sixties, early seventies of like, there's some other answers out there. You know, it's, it's like, you've got this and that, that fits part of the population, but you know, there's other people over here that don't necessarily subscribe to the same set of beliefs and they've got some different frames of thought. And that was becoming a bit more, they were becoming a bit more vocal. And then that time period, you know, the turbulent 1960s, that was something that came out of that. I'm not talking hippie free love movement or whatever, but just the, awareness of other religious beliefs other than Christianity. This was the time period where it was really starting, starting to kind of become mainstream. It had always been out there, but um, it was becoming a bit more mainstream, late 60s, early 70s. We have Nani Perry, played by Carol Lindley. She is the lounge singer who sings The Morning After. Don't believe from her performance that she would be producing any number one hit records. Uh, she didn't you know, do the song. That's why Maureen McGovern did the song. 
every one of these movies has got the one person that just needs to be smacked uh, repeatedly. You know, you've got oh. you've got different characters. You're going to have a recurring thing where there's might be a, a nagging spouse or or some spousal distress. I don't get me wrong. I I I, I do love Carol Lindley, but there were some moments where it's just like, oh my gosh, you know, you are going to get people killed, woman. You need to calm down, work your way through the moment. I don't know. Yeah, there's every all these movies have that one person that you just kind of want to. And sometimes they do get smacked or knocked out. Not Carol Lindley, because she had red buttons helping her. Yeah, but, you know, her brother died. He was the piano player while she sang the morning after, and he died. So she's sad. She doesn't know how she can go on. But Red, like you said, Red Button says, because you have to. We're going to talk about actors who were considered for this movie. But I do, as we're talking about these characters, I read where Gene Wilder was actually... Uh, originally supposed to play the character of James Martin. That would have been an interesting turn. I mean, I know Gene Wilder at this time period was doing a lot of comedies and I've seen interviews with him. He's a different guy. He, he, and certainly later in life, he didn't sugarcoat. If he didn't like something, grumpy old man, bam, he'd let you know. Refreshing though. I mean, still brilliant talent. You know, it's interesting. I, I, cause I've also heard some things from uh, Terry Garr, where, and it was hard to know if she was being serious, but she was being interviewed. She has MS and has suffered for years from it and is not in the best of health. She was asked once about Gene Wilder and did not have anything good to say about him. Hmm. But then you're kind of like, and for, I've often thought when I've seen that interview a couple of times, I wonder, was she being sarcastic? But because of the way she was coming across in the interview, that sarcasm wasn't picked up properly. And it came across as she was just being honest. You know, I don't know. I've always wondered, I was like, was she, was she, you know, just throwing, throwing us for a curb or was she being serious? Because I've never heard anything else bad about Gene Wilder, but she said that he was very much uh, uh, a less than pleasant perfectionist. Hmm. So thinking about how Carol Lindley was acting and if we get that less than pleasant perfectionist Gene Wilder could have taken the movie in a whole different. Yeah, he might have slapped her. He might have slapped. She might have been the one going off and and, uh, getting knocked off the ladder there instead of being talked up. And then the last cast member I wanted to mention, and you may think of others that I didn't, but is Akers, the... I don't know what you call him, a, the waiter or something works in the kitchen, the, the staff of the ship, played by Roddy McDowell. He enjoys Nani's performance. And then he later, he's stuck above everybody else. He kind of helps everyone take their first steps climbing up. Hurts his leg really bad, but he doesn't complain at all. He he really perseveres. I wanted to see more of him. I, his yeah. one was kind of got the short end of the stick. His accent was all over the place. You know, is he Scottish? Is he Irish? Is he English? I don't know. He had a hard time telling exactly where <laughs> where he was from. But we didn't see enough of him. I love Roddy McDowell. So it's like, uh, you know, I wish he, was, wish he would have survived a little bit longer. But it's a disaster movie and people have to die. And so he was the weak link in a way because he had the leg injury. 
And so there was things that he just wasn't going to be able to complete. And climbing up a ladder was going to be an issue. There's no way to climb up a ladder if you've got a bad leg injury. It's just not going to work. So that's our cast. They gather on New Year's Eve. They toast to the new year. They sing Old Lang Syne. And then that darn subsea earthquake off the coast of Crete causes the tidal wave to suddenly hit. They kind of see something coming. I don't think they realize how close it is. Yeah, it hits the ship. They tilt slowly at first. uh, And then it's hit really hard. And before you know it, people are hanging from the tables. And uh, we're seeing a shot from outside of the Poseidon. It is completely upside down in the water. Immediately when you're looking at this, right, you know that there's some exterior shots on the Queen Mary, but everything in this are real sets, no CGI. And I don't even think there was any matte shots for any, because I mean, everything was, it was, looked like it was an actual set. I'm not sure that there would have been an opportunity for a matte, like when they get down to the, you know, the engine room and stuff. I mean, that's all legit, uh, legit sets. And many of the cast were doing a lot of their own stunts. I mean, they were showing the wear and tear. I mean, they filmed this movie sequentially. So as they continued to work through the movie and they started getting bumps and bruises and stuff, doing their own stunts, you'd see the bumps and bruises or whatever starting to appear on them. Those are real. This day and age, yeah, everything you would see would be CGI. They wouldn't spend the money to recreate a ship. They would do CGI and it would look amazing and you probably wouldn't even be able to tell but I think the fact that we're, you look at these huge, big sets that they built for this, to me, that's a, an era of filmmaking that is, that is uh, unfortunately gone. And so when I see a movie like this, it just you just think, man, they put a lot of effort into this film. Yeah, uh, I think they used miniature, didn't they, for the, like, the wide shots of the ship in the water? I think so, yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's tangible, it's gritty, it's... I don't think in the other two movies there's that shot, sort of, you know, where they were doing the best they could, but it just didn't look that great. I can't think of a shot like that in this film. No, I mean, you get a lot of it in Earthquake as compared to the other two films, and that's simply technology at the time. And, you know, I was expecting a lot more of it, actually, in Airport 77, And you do get a little, but, you know, once the plane gets submerged. Yeah, this one really, I mean, it it has weathered very well. It's, it's, it has stood the test of time. And this movie for being, gosh, going on 50 years old, still looks really good. Still holds up. Well, what else do you want to talk about? I mean, you know, we've talked about that they're, they're going to try to go up to get out. There's sort of two camps Others that want to stay there because they think they'll be rescued. They later on pass another group that's going a different direction because they think it's the way. But, you know, we're focusing on those people that are bound and determined to get to the bottom or the top of the ship where the hole is only an inch thick and somebody may be able to cut in and and rescue them. You know, this it's it's essentially you're following their journey as the movie progresses. Um, And you know that that there's going to be deaths along the way because he said you know a couple you know are are choreographed one came as a surprise to me so the the first passing i want to backtrack for a second before we even get to that so they 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 use the the christmas tree 
to climb, which I thought was brilliant. And I didn't catch this when I watched it, but apparently as they're lifting the Christmas tree, Ernest Borgnine uh, muttered under his breath, holy F, this is heavy. And they kept it in. And I didn't, I didn't catch that. I don't know. Did you catch him saying no, that? No, I read that so today. Apparently I... it's, it's, it's muttered under his breath, but they kept it in because it's like, well, yeah, that's what somebody would say. Probably you're moving on huge Christmas tree. I thought that was, I thought that was kind of funny. And I want to, while you're talking about that, I want to note that the person's idea that thinks going up is the best way is red buttons. James Martin. He is the one that it's like, wait a minute. It makes sense to me that, I mean, he explains it so well, I'd believe yeah. him and do whatever he said. Mike Rogo, Ernest Borgnine is the doubting Thomas in this movie. I mean, basically every step of the way he's like, you know, can't be done. Can't be done. They reach a moment where they find some other survivors who are going the wrong way. Reverend Scott says, no, that's not the way to go. You need to go this way. And it was the I the ship's doctor and the nurse and uh, a group of people. The nurse, by the way, played by Erwin Allen's uh, wife, Sheila, which could explain why she wasn't that great of an actress. <laughs> So they're going off to what Reverend Scott believes is their doom, but he's like, nope, we're going to go this way. And he believes that he's, because they said, well, they didn't see the engine room. And so Mike Rogo says, well, you know, we need to go this way. They didn't see it. And Reverend Scott was, they didn't look for it. They didn't go that far. They just assume that it's blocked. Well, they find a way. He Reverend Scott does find a way, but Mike Rogo is only going to give him 15 minutes. Like you only get 15 minutes. You go, you find it. And if you're not back, we're going this way. It reaches like 16 minute mark. They're ready to start walking. And then he of course comes in, you know, and says, found it. And Mike Rogo did start walking that way. He didn't put up a fight. He was true to his word. And they, they walk towards the engine room that ends up being a little more complicated than they anticipated because the passageway is in fact blocked at one point and leads to as they're, as they're needing to get to where they need to get to. There's they've already, by this point, they've already lost uh Roddy McDowell because they had to climb up a ladder to get to one level. As mentioned, can't climb up a ladder with a bum leg. And so he ends up, there's an explosion. The ship does continue to have these explosions there is water pouring into the ship, so it's not like it's a it's a it's a casual stroll through this upside upside down ship. It's a race against time. They they've got water on their backsides. They got to keep moving. They got to keep going. We lose Roddy McDowell. I just want to interject that it's at that point that you just described with Ernest Borgnine that more than once he says something to the gist of that son of a bitch was right because he's yeah, realizing. Ernest Borgnine is is great in just about anything he does. I love Ernest Borgnine. He's just got a way about him. In this movie, yeah, he's just being classic Ernest Borgnine. Great, great actor. We're going to talk about Academy Award winning actors, but he is one. Often, I think he did a lot of bad movies. He did a lot of cheesy stuff. But even when he did the cheesy movies, I don't know. He always seemed to, he just seemed to give his all. This is a piece of crap, but I'm going to shine it up as best I can. 
and give you my best. I don't think I ever saw a movie where he phoned it in. I think he always, always gave his best. And here, you know, he, he definitely owns the role of Mike Rogo. Who's the next one that we lose along the way? Is, is it Shelley Winters? I believe so. Cause we only lose three, don't we? We do only lose three. So yeah, yeah so he's be, next for sure. Shelley Winters. Yeah. So they, they reach a point where they've got to essentially hold their breath and swim underwater. I don't know if I could do that. I mean, that's, you have to hold your breath for a long time. I don't know. You know, I, I thought the same thing. It was like, man, I don't know that I could do that. And you're having to basically swim underwater, see where you're going, have a flashlight, follow the rope and don't breathe. Yet they only lose one person and they lose the one who you think would have made it or should have made it. Well, technically she did make it. And that's Shelly Winters. She Yeah, but sort of the irony is she didn't drown. You know, she yeah, got out safely and then had a heart attack. And she had a heart attack, which you're like, well, okay, was her weight that caused that? Eh, you don't know that, you know. Right. Mean, that's the age. thought at the time, I'm sure. Nowadays it's it's people under well, I mean, I'm I'm a big fluffy guy, and I have often said I'm I'm this weird anomaly, you know. It's like I, I don't have high blood pressure or I'm not diabetic and I don't have all these other things. I'm just fluffy. <laughs> uh, I got extra fluff. Shelly Winters though. I mean, I, she looked really good in that scene. I, I, you know, she had the form and, and everything. Esther Williams was supposed to be the character of Belle because of course, Esther Williams, if you don't know, was a swimmer and she was in so many movies, swimming movies back in the day she hadn't been in movies for a while. She had gained a little weight and she was married to Fernando Lamas and he was controlling and misogynistic and forbid her to do the movie because he felt that because she had gained weight, she was going to embarrass herself and embarrass him. And so she didn't, didn't accept the role. And she later regretted that saying she knew she could have done the role and it would have been fine you know, said that her marriage to him was was a mistake because it was very controlling. And we will hear Fernando Lamas's name later on in this show, interestingly enough, that kind of supports her comments. I don't know. Esther Williams, I don't think is as known today as Shelley Winters is. So I don't I think at the time she might have been okay. But again, Shelley Winters was in her prime at that point definitely an A-list actor or definitely a B-list actor in the least. She was known for a lot of stuff. Esther Williams had been out of films. So I think her presence in the film might not have been as impactful as having somebody like Shelley Winters. I think the role wouldn't have been as special as it was. But interesting that she was offered the role. Yeah. And sad when she died. I, that uh, I knew she died, but, you know, and I knew it was probably at that moment. But when she's, you know, G- Gene Hackman's reaction when she dies, he's devastated. I think it's that's part reverend, part who he was as a person, and part just the fact that they had gone through and the fact that she saved his life. And then she turns around and, and, and dies because he got stuck under a piece of metal. And, and she was, that's why she went in, finds him, saves him, and then dies. So yeah, that's, he get, puts in an amazing scene. And then when Jack Albertson comes up, 
so sad. He's just so devastated, but he trudges forward for their grandson. Uh, she had a necklace and she gives it to Gene Hackman, who then gives it to Jack Albertson say, this is what we got to, you got to give this to your, to your grandson. But uh, I think of the three deaths, that's the one that is the most impactful. The next one we have, which doesn't come too long after this, was pretty impactful for a character, but not as impactful as, as losing Shelley Winters, I think, for me anyway. So what about that? Let's just say it. Gene Hackman, Reverend Scott, sacrifices himself to save everybody. Oh, wait. So we have four deaths. Who's the other? Linda Rogo. Oh, I'm so, sorry. As they get to the, they're entering the final stage, right? They're on this this catwalk, getting to where they need to get to the potentially get out of the ship. I think it's an like another explosion. The the boat rocks and Linda Rogo, Stella Stevens, falls very quickly and abruptly to her death in this boiling water and fire and flame and probably some oil mixed in for that. It's just gasoline. It's, it's not a good thing. There's no way she's going to survive. Ernest Borgnine devastated. Mike Rogo, his character is just, because I think it's kind of like, you know, in his mind, I'm this ugly guy who has this beautiful gal, never going to have someone that beautiful again. And to just witness her like that devastating not as devastating, I think, as Shelley Winter's death, because I think just her the reaction that we get from Gene Hackman and Jack Albertson is different. Bernard Sporknine turns in a, a great performance there as well, suffering the loss of and you know, and he immediately takes it out on Reverend Scott, right? Blames him. You son of a bitch, you did this, and I blame you. And great, great performance. So that's I uh, actually expected her to drop sooner, what with those high heels she wore through the whole thing. <laughs> but they were well, strap-ons, so, you know, they, they weren't going to fall off. But, you know, like, I saw that, uh, especially on the stairs. I'm like, she is wearing those heels. I don't know how thick. I immediately thought of, what, one of the Jurassic Park movies where Bryce Dallas Howard, everyone makes fun because she was wearing her high heels the whole movie or something on Jurassic Park. But, yeah. you know, what's the alternative? I mean, burning your feet on the hot surface and everything. I mean... She didn't have yeah, any you can't go barefoot. I mean, you could, if you, depending on how the heels are made, I guess you could try to break the heel off, but that's going to keep you just as unbalanced. So that's death number three. And then, of course, death number four, a sad one as well. I did not remember that we lost this character. Maybe equally as sad as, as losing Shelley Winters, simply because I liked Gene Hackman in this movie, he, he turns in a great performance. He sacrifices himself. He's got to basically turn the dial to, to get the steam to turn off so they can move forward. He has to jump, hang on, turn it, and there's no way to get back at that point. To I mean, when he jumped, it was, there was no going back. He hangs on as long as he can and falls to his death, which is interesting we're going to talk about this in a second, but remember how he died. He fell to his death in flame and gasoline, oil, and all sorts of bubbling stuff. Very definitive death. Remember that, because we're going to... All right. I won't, I won't forget. That's not easily forgettable. 
Because he doesn't go down quiet. I mean, he's cursing God and yeah, he's where, mad. where has he been through all this? And yeah, he's mad. It's like, come on, we've made it this far, and this is we know. Yeah, he's not he's like you want another life, take mine, and drops. Nope. He drops. So we have Mike Rogo, James Martin, Naughty Perry, Annie Rosen, Susan, and her brother. What's her brother's name? Uh, Susan's brother. <laughs> I, I keep uh, thinking of Corey, but all the movies have a kid too, don't they? They do. Uh, Robin. So they make it and basically they luck out, really, let's be honest, because they get that far and then it's like, well, they're there, but how are they going to get out, essentially? And the final scene being the rescue crew is just happens to show up and bang, bang, bang. Oh, yes, we're here. Bang, bang, bang. And, well, you just happen to have a blowtorch that's going to cut through the one-inch steel spot right in this ship, and we're going to get you out. At that point, we were led to believe that nobody else survived. That they are the last survivors of... But there's other parts of the ship. You know, we don't know what happened to that other group going the other way. Exactly. And we will get the answer to that some seven years later when Irwin Allen decided to become a director, as you said, and and do a little film called Beyond the Poseidon Adventure, which we'll talk about in a second. Gosh, we didn't mention music by John Williams. Oh, right, right. Um, Two out of three of these movies. Very busy around this time period. He was kind of the king of disaster films as well, as far as music goes around this time period, because he was also doing, he, he he did Earthquake, right? Yes, and he did the Towering Inferno. He was doing Earthquake and the Towering Inferno at the same time. Of course, John Williams, up to this point, had been prolific on television. But from this point forward, he was really, you know, prolific in little-known films like Star Wars and Superman <laughs> and Indiana Jones and Harry Potter. And, and he's still with us. He is, what, in his 90s now, I think. Uh, I was legitimately concerned that he wasn't going to make it to the Star Wars Episode Nine, but he did. I don't think the music in the last three films is as, as, as good as necessarily the earlier films. There's just lacked the, the, the catchy themes, but it was still good. It's still John Williams. Bad John Williams is still good John Williams. What did you think of the music in this or in Earthquake? I didn't think it was particularly notable. No, I mean, it doesn't have the catchy themes that you would have, like, you know, you play Star Wars or Superman or Indiana Jones, you know, yeah, you know it right away. Harry Potter, yeah, you know it. I I hate to say this, but serviceable. I mean, you know, it was, it did what it needed to do, but it, it, there wasn't anything outstanding. And I don't think either movies needed like a, a theme. No because that's not what the movie was about, you know, as opposed to big sci-fi epic needs, needs a powerful theme to carry it. A superhero needs, like Superman needs that. It's iconic. You didn't need that necessarily for this film. Do you want to talk about the writers and directors real quick? I mean, I do have some stuff on them. As we said, based on a novel by Paul Gallico, it was written by... I thought this wasn't a real name at first. Sterling Siliphant, Wendell Mays. So Wendell Mays did 
uh, not a lot of movies, but he did some stuff like Spirit of St. Louis, Anatomy of a Murder, In Harm's Way, Death Wish. A few classics along the way there. Sterling Sillifant had a lot of credits, actually. He did stuff like Alfred Hitchcock. He did 116 episodes of Route 66, Naked City, films like Charlie and Marlowe, Village of the Damned. Kind of an interesting mix there. And directed by Ronald Neem, as we said, the directors in these movies really are are not going to be names that you're going to remember. But he had like 26 film credits to his name, including Scrooge, 1970, The Odessa File, Meteor with Sean Connery, which is a movie I really want to revisit, and Hopscotch with uh, Walter Matthau, who we'll be seeing shortly in Earthquake. Or do we? I can't wait for your, your pronunciation on that. I, I actually worked on it. I did you? Okay. Yeah, I did, actually, because I, I figured somebody's got to say it. Other little tidbits. Do we want to go with some trivia now? Are we ready sure. for trivia? Sure. Carol Lindley and Red Buttons hated each other during the filming of this movie, but later became very good friends. And in fact, when Red Buttons, one of his last public appearances was at the 2006 Poseidon movie premiere. Carol Lindley was there with him towards the end of his life. We had five uh, Academy Award-winning actors in this movie. Uh, Gene Hackman, Ernest Borgnine, Shelley Winters, Jack Albertson, and Red Buttons. And a lot of famous people were offered various parts, and we mentioned some already up to this point. Burt Lancaster and George C. Scott were offered the role of Reverend Scott, I'm not sure. Burt Lancaster turned down the role because he felt he was wrong for the part. I can't see George C. Scott. I can see him more than Burt Lancaster, but I don't know George C. Scott doing some of the more physical aspects. He's a very kind of solid actor. I don't know if he'd have been able to pull off the physicality that was needed. And Sally Kellerman was offered the role of Linda Rogo, which I could see that, actually. I could, I could yeah. see her in this time period pulling it off. This movie had a sequel and two remakes. So we had Beyond the Poseidon Adventure 1979, which in itself has a fairly stellar cast. Michael Caine, Sally Field, Telly Savalas, Peter Boyle, Jack Warden, Shirley Jones, Carl Mullins, Slim Pickens... Mark Harmon and Angela Cartwright from Lost in Space. Gene Hackman was offered to return to the role of Reverend Scott in this film. And he had to remind them, I died. And they said, don't worry about it. We'll work around it. And he's like, how? They initially were going to supposedly somehow say that he survived the fall, which how? That's impossible. Then they went with the old Hollywood trope of it's Reverend Scott's twin brother. Oh no. Signed adventure in search of his brother. Thankfully, Gene Hackman said, no, thank you. And passed. That would have been disastrous. There was a 2005 uh, movie on the USA network of the Poseidon adventure, which took the first two films and blended them together. Beyond the Poseidon adventure has to do with, Basically, fortune hunters, there's 
all sorts of stuff supposedly on the Poseidon we find in the second movie. There's money, there's uh, plutonium or, or something or other on the ship. And of course, there's additional survivors that were not right there waiting for the people with the blowtorch to open up the door. In the 2005 version, did you ever see that one? Oh, you know, I don't know. I feel like I would have, but it's neither one is memorable. Adam Baldwin plays the character of Mike Rogo, the only character that kind of stays the same. He's now a sea marshal, though, so he's not a police officer. Other cast included Rutger Hauer, Steve Gutenberg, C. Thomas Howell, and Peter Weller. Interesting cast. Yeah. And then, of course, the 2006 remake that was simply called Poseidon. I did see this one. I remember enjoying it enough because I hadn't seen the original for so long, but I've never watched it since. So we're talking 15 years ago. It came and went in the theaters fairly quickly. It did star Kurt Russell and Richard Dreyfuss, two well-known uh, actors, which I enjoy seeing, but couldn't tell you anything about the movie, which I guess tells you about the movie because yeah. it kind of came and went. You don't even see this one on television. So this movie just kind of came and went. And uh, it's only like an hour and 40 minutes long too, which by today's standards, is pretty short for an action thriller. This movie is for rent on Amazon Prime. It's also available on Blu-ray for less than 15, which I believe is how you saw it, because I watched your DVD copy that you so graciously gave me, which had lots of cool extras on it. Are all those carried over onto the Blu-ray? Oh, yes. Before I give you a hand-me-down, I always check to see if there's anything that I'm going to lose. By giving I, figured, <laughs> I figured you don't want to lose anything along the way, yes. which is why I kept that one disc from the Scarecrow from the Marsh, because yes. that's not on the Blu-rays. I do the same. You hand down to me more than I have the opportunity. Well, to and give. sometimes I'll, I'll burn those extra features and still give it to you, but I didn't oh. have to do that with Poseidon. I will say that, again, this has been more than 30 years since I saw this, and I thoroughly enjoyed this one. I do want to see Beyond the Poseidon Adventure, even though I know it's not anywhere nearly as good. I do want to see it uh, sooner than later. I enjoyed this. This was a great start to the disaster flicks. Me too. My, my favorite of the three, it's a solid, solid movie. One thing you didn't mention that I'll just say, this is on the American Film Institute's list of the most heart-pounding American movies. And it is certainly that. It's it's very suspenseful at times. Once it gets going, yeah, it doesn't really stop. There's there's very little downtime because they got to keep going. I mean, the water's coming. My favorite of the three films as well. I will say this now. I would rewatch all three of these movies again. Of the three, this is the one that I would most definitely watch again. Let's take a break, play the trailer for our next movie, and we'll come back and talk about Earthquake. given Earthquake its maximum effort, starting with the story and screenplay written by George Fox and Mario Puzo, author of The Godfather. Universal has enriched this fascinating drama of interwoven lives with a superb cast. Charlton Heston, Ava Gardner, George Kennedy, 
Lorne Green, Genevieve Bujold, Richard Roundtree, Marjo Gortner, Barry Sullivan, plus the city of Los Angeles and its millions of people living, loving, planning, fighting until nature's most violent upheaval forces them to battle and claw for life itself. Jim, Stuart Graff. He's dying again. Yeah, I think we'll get faster action if you call me. I have to go to Oregon this summer. All summer on a hydroelectric project. Come up there. They indicate another pre-shock, probably before noon today. And if it happens? Then the big one follows in 48 hours. If this dam busts, there won't be nothing between here and Wilshire Boulevard left to burn. Sacrifice, hysteria, and mass emotion that will surround and engulf you completely and make you feel you are there. You're all gonna have to help yourselves. Help me! Please, no boy, I'll need help too. I've got to try and find her. Is she more important than me? Get the hell out of here! Virtually the entire western coast of our hemisphere rests on a series of geologic faults. One of the most unstable of these is the San Andreas Fault, spanning 600 miles through the state of California. At two points, the sides of the fault are locked. Elastic strain energy is being built up. Invisibly, the land is being compressed and warped, storing energy like a colossal spring under the crust of the earth. Many scientists think this energy will break loose and a cataclysmic earthquake will occur within the next decade. Others feel it could happen tomorrow. Or, Richard, it could happen in 1974. This is the pinnacle of the 70s disaster movie. Three movies came out in 74. All were big box office hits. The Towering Inferno, Airport 75, and Earthquake. Earthquake came out November 15th, 1974 from Universal Pictures. This was the first time in over 30 years that I have seen this. It immediately takes me back to going to Universal because, of course, they still have the little earthquake part in the uh, the ride. Have you been to Universal? Yep. That same trip I mentioned earlier was, it must have been after 74 because we did the earthquake ride. I remember, I guess it's Universal in... Florida in Orlando had that and it was part of like a bigger ride they had kind of like 
the leftover remnants of of the earthquake ride because you were I, i'm trying to remember they were like we were making a movie or something and then it came to the part where there was like a subway scene and and that was the leftover part and the water came rushing down and stuff like that and it was it was the the leftover aspects of it and i believe when we were in california doing the universal tour we went through the village section and the scene with miles on his bike was actually uh we we were there we uh that was part of the tour because they showed where the water comes rushing down in that area it's like if you go a little bit farther because you can kind of see in that movie he's like in, in what looks like almost a village which kind of like in earthquake it kind of like where is he at and i, I immediately was like oh i know where he's at because that's where the tour bus went over and that's where they they said, you know, they stopped. And then, of course, the water comes rushing down. Like right beyond that was where the old West Mexican village cantinas and stuff were still there. And like on the other side was where the village they still had set up from the Universal Monster films. And I don't know now. I mean, that was, gosh, I'm trying to remember how long ago that was. Close to a decade ago now. Just kind of crazy. I don't know how much of it's still there now because I know they continue to make changes and tear things down and they're not using a lot of those for sets anymore. And they said that they said these had been used up until not too long before that, but they said as uh, CGI technology and stuff is coming up, they don't need that anymore. And so they don't really film any of that. Uh, It's standing for the tour, but beyond that, yeah, not really used to make movies anymore. That scene, actually, I remember that. They they basically flipped a switch and the water came rushing down. Why don't we start out and go through the characters like we did with Poseidon Adventure. We've got another okay. all-star cast led by the great Charlton Heston playing, and all of these characters, at least in IMDb, they only use their last name. So he plays Graf. Stuart. Yeah. Stuart was his oh, name. Oh, thank you. You have to pay attention, I guess, to the movie to hear what they call their first name. Yeah, he was a former football player, and now he's a star architect. And he is married to Remy, played by Ava Gardner. Is She is a henpecking wife. She is yes. a drunk, and I think she's flat out crazy as well. So I don't blame him for having an affair with Denise, played by Genevieve Bougeot. So you know Doctor Who connections in this episode, but here's my Star Trek connection. She was the original actress to play Captain Janeway in Star Trek Voyager. Huh. She was hired. She did at least a day or two of filming. The footage still exists. She was horrible in the role. <laughs> she had zero interest in being there. Her performance, her accent was just not really working, and she would have been horrible in the role. Kate Mulgrew was a million times better. And she was just very problematic on set. She just didn't want to be there and hmm. was very disinterested. And, and it came across in her her performance. And she wasn't let go. She quit because she just, science fiction, not her thing. And then Kate Mulgrew, I think, had like a matter of days. It's like hired and here you go. That's my Star Trek connection. Interesting. Well, in Earthquake, she is a young widow raising uh, her son, Corey, played by Tiger Williams, uh, on her own. And it's funny you say that about her in Star Trek, because I think she's really good in this. 
I mean, there is a long scene when Charlton Heston is helping her learn her lines for a role. And for someone to make that scene interesting, I, I was fascinated by her. I thought she was really good. I liked her character. I mean, uh, she had lost her husband. And that's why Stuart was helping. He was kind of something because he worked for Stuart, I think, or something. And there's a, a little reference that, well, do you feel guilty or responsible? Because, you know, and then Stuart's like, no, I don't. Clearly, though, I mean, there's there's an attraction there. He has an attraction for her because there is no love for, for his wife whatsoever. And for very good reasons, honestly. And even we'll talk about it, if I'm sure you're aware of it, the deleted scene that didn't make the final cut that really would have made her public enemy number one, honestly. So maybe you don't know. You could give I me don't a know. I look. look forward to that. Yeah. Yeah. It was something that they, too controversial, they couldn't even include it in the TV version. Graf's boss, Stuart's boss, is Royce, played by Lauren Green. He happens to be Remy's father. When he promotes Stuart to president of the company, it's really because of Remy pulling some strings. She thinks if he gets this promotion and it take it'll take his mind off his affair with Denise. So of course, when he figures out that she is part of it, Lauren Green promised him that she had nothing to do with it, but he walks in the office and finds out, oh yeah, she had something to do with it. So he's not happy with her by the time the quake hits. So Slade, played by George Kennedy. Who plays who plays Remy? Because I, I think you skipped over. Oh, did I skip Ava Gardner? Yes. Yeah, Sorry. you skipped over. Yeah, yeah. I told went off into how awful she was, but not, did not explain that yes, that is film legend Ava Gardner. Which is somewhat problematic in, in casting because yeah. although she's a year older than Charlton Heston, she looks older than Charlton Heston, I thought. And Laura Green, there was only a six-year age difference between the two. And I'm not even sure he was older than, than Ava Gardner. I think she may have been older than, than him, honestly. He does not look old enough to be her father in any way, shape, or form. They look more like a couple. Seriously. Yeah. Um, Ava Gardner, uh, A-list actress, and that's why she was brought in. Odd choice, though. I mean, I, she plays it well. But the, the age is, is certainly off, I think, anyway. So Slade is the cop played by George Kennedy. He's got such good moral character that it gets him suspended from duty. He uh, causes havoc in the neighborhood by chasing somebody that did some, I don't remember the details, but really hurt somebody. And when he's being scolded for causing damage to so-and-so's hedge, he, he was really trying to do good. So he's suspended. The, the guy killed a little girl. He was a hit and run deal. He hit and killed a little girl and George Kennedy kind of went dirty Harry mode and crossed the lines and of jurisdiction lines and also decked the the Hollywood copper or whatever, uh, which was a fun scene there where the guy comes up and says, you crossed the line with the cops. Cause I think it was in Hollywood had said, you know, do you know whose heads that was? That's Zsa Gabor. <laughs> and then George Kennedy, you know, like I think he pokes his chest or something and George Kennedy just hauls off and gives him a good smack. And George Kennedy's boss says like he, you knocked three of his teeth loose and shipped another or something like that. George Kennedy's is, uh, at this point was in his prime as an actor and was a very stern 
very stout looking fellow. So I wouldn't want to be on the receiving end of a good smack from him. Meanwhile, at the California (laughs) Seismological Institute, Walter Russell, played by Kit Niven, is a young scientist convinced that the big quake is coming. His boss, Stockel, played by Barry Sullivan, doesn't believe him, and they want to hear from Dr. Frank Adams, played by Bob Cunningham, but he's out investigating a fault, and he's soon going to be buried alive within that fault. So they'll never get his advice on what to do. No, kind of a horrific death. I mean, all things considered, there's a lot of death in this movie, but that situation, getting buried alive by dirt, man, you can imagine the panic in your final moments, I mean, you're you're trying to get out. You know that if I don't get out, I'm dead. Ugh. That that scene gave me. I was just I started panicking when I was watching it. I was like, not good. We have Miles played by Richard Roundtree. He's a stuntman preparing for a big audition with a Vegas showman. And this, I texted you when I saw him. He's a mix between Evil Knievel and the DC Comics character Black Lightning. <laughs> he has a, a costume that is. Lightning bolts. It looked a lot like Black Lightning. I mean, it did, I mean, it did actually, that. yeah. Then we have Rosa, played by Victoria Principal. I, I look forward to your story in a bit about her. But she is the sister of Miles's assistant, Sal, played by Gabriel Dell. And part of when the stuff goes down is, you know, they're looking for her, but... She goes to the grocery store, and the manager, Jody, played by Marjo Gortner, has his eye on her, and he's going to, let's just say, detain her during the earthquake, causing a little... That job. Let's just, let's not sugarcoat it. We learned that he is not stable, and man, have I got a story about that actor that'll, if you don't know about him, Wow. Well, let's come back to that. We've only got a couple more, uh, but he, right. Jody's in the National Guard. So that's what we want is someone unhinged yeah. in the yeah. National Guard during an earthquake. And I then, love how his, how the three people that's with him, they, they jump ship at one point. They're like, we're looking for somebody sane. They don't even attempt. And that's why I was like, oh my God, they're not even attempting to, to help. They just like run the other direction. It's like, yeah, that's exactly who I want saving me in a moment of crisis. We have the mayor, played by John Randolph. You'll definitely recognize him. He's concerned about alerting the people because if it's a false alarm, he'll look like a fool. John Randolph, in case you don't know him by name, he's a character actor that everybody will know as Chevy Chase's dad in Christmas Vacation. That's the one thing he's most known for now is is playing his dad because we see him every December, multiple times every year. I know that's one of my favorite movies. So that's immediately what I thought of. It's like, Clark's dad, Grandpa Griswold. And then Dr. Vance, who doesn't have a big part. I think some of his scenes were cut. Originally, he was going to be have a bigger part in the story, but he's played by Lloyd Nolan. Uh, he helps more at the end uh, when with some of the survivors, and he actually has the last words of the movie, which we'll talk about maybe at the end of the movie. One character I did not, I, I want to give you the honors, Richard. Tell us about our patron at the bar. Walter Matuszczynski. Pretty good. Matuszczynski. Walter Matthau. Uh, So supposedly he didn't want to use his real name. So he gave that as his real name. 
and it's not his real name, which in itself is that's kind of funny that they got that far with it. He is a pimp daddy drunk at the end of the bar. He has got 1970s pimp style outfit, shirt, pants, hat, and is drunk throughout the entire movie. He does fall over at one point. After he, all of the earthquakes. Yes, yes he after settled all down, the Then he falls over. And the last we see of him, he, he makes it, God love him, he makes it to the shelter. And yes. Oh, I didn't see him after the bar. Absolutely. They didn't give a close-up of him. He's in the shelter dancing when they show a scene. Oh, that was him? That's him. Oh, yeah. okay. That's him. He's sitting there doing his little dance. Yeah. I don't know what his why he got in the movie. I mean, it, it's it is hilarious. I mean, but the whole time you're like, oh my God, it's Walter Matthau. I was like, it's this weird kind of comic relief that I don't know that the movie needed per se, but uh, it is weird. His his role is definitely weird because it really does almost pulls you out of the moment a little bit because he keeps Bobby Riggs, you know, and 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 doing these weird toasts uh, before he falls off his chair funny though it's walter matthau or walter matis chanskiaski twice you are a brave man uh, something about this movie that oh it, i don't know it's not that i dislike it it's just odd this is earthquake and i know an earthquake would cause a dam to pinch, potentially explode but there are more scenes at the dam and what's happening there that are interspersed from beginning to end. That's really the climax of the movie is the dam breaking, not so much the earthquake. I know the earthquake yeah. was the catalyst for it. I got a little tired of every couple minutes it's back to the dam and oh, now there's a hairline fracture and oh, we don't see any damage and oh, the water's a little bit higher. And I don't know, it, it's nitpicky, but I thought some of those scenes could maybe be trimmed a little or cut. Well, the movie, I mean, so the disaster part of it, in a normal circumstance, earthquakes last maybe about 40 seconds, typically. And here, I don't know. It seems like it goes on for forever. I think I read nine minutes. Yeah, I think that's, realistically, you're seeing all these different scenes and stuff, so you can just go with the assumption, well, maybe it doesn't last quite that long, but I don't know. It takes a long time for the house to go falling down the hill. And of the three films, surprisingly, this was the one that kind of pushed the believability for me a little bit. I thought Airport 77 would, but actually I was more in tune with Airport 77 being believable than Earthquake. Earthquake, obviously real event, certainly can happen. How it's portrayed here it almost came across at times a little soap opera-ish. Oh, yeah. We got a lot of character development that is not present in the other two films. We do get character development in the other two, but here we get a lot of it. And we know a lot more about these characters than we do about any of the other characters in the other movies. And to me, it was a slow buildup, right? It's like to, to the actual earthquake and then dealing with the disaster part of it. Really, but what did, did you... Keep track. When does the earthquake happen? Isn't it? it's close to an hour into the movie, isn't it? 53 minutes. Yep. Yeah. So you get 53 minutes of backstory and occasional tremor here and there. That is kind of a long ways to go again. And then it's the earthquake's over. You're dealing with the aftermath. 
And as you said, the climax is the dam breaking, which you kind of knew that was going to happen. We're building up to it. You know, I did enjoy the movie. Don't think that I didn't because I did. But of the three, this is my least favorite. And it's the one that I think has not aged as well. Some of the special effects, there's a scene where you get a building and it's like they, they were doing it with like mirrors and warping and stuff. Yeah, that kind of looks a little hinky by today's standards. Some of the special effects look good. Some look a little cheesy by today's standards. There's two versions of this movie. There's the theatrical version and then the television version. And we'll talk a little bit about why, but essentially there was extra scenes that were filmed for the TV. Or do we want to talk of the TV version now? Do you just want to talk about that or do we want uh, to wait? Let's come back to that. Okay. So there is one scene that was filmed for the TV version where it came across looking really cheesy and it's a scene with an airplane and we get introduced to other characters that we'll talk about a little bit, but there's a scene basically where the airplane is, is on, on the ground, the earthquake's happening and it lifts up. And after the plane lifts up off the ground, the plane is still shaking. And I'm like, (laughs) it's not on the ground anymore. It shouldn't be shaking. I guess Maybe the after effect, maybe that's where they were trying to go. I don't know. That looked like not a theatrical, but a made-for-TV, low-budget moment that it was not in the version I watched because I watched the the theatrical version. You mentioned the special effects, and I don't think they were bad. I love matte paintings, and, you know, a lot of times they're not terribly realistic, but these big old matte paintings of the city and ruins and that I... Those didn't bother me. I I like I know they're not hyper realistic, but I enjoy them in a movie of this era. Yeah, I mean, I think from a nostalgic perspective, I, I don't have anything wrong with matte paintings either. I mean, matte paintings are used a lot. I love, you know, the paper mache rocks on Star Trek because I know the time in which it was made. If I was to watch an episode of Star Trek Discovery and they're using paper mache rocks, I might say, "Come on." You know, couldn't somebody with a computer make it look a little better? But when you're watching something from the time period, so that's where I say, if you watch Earthquake from a nostalgic perspective, that kind of stuff isn't going to bother you that much. And it didn't bother me, but I noted that I don't think it would wear the test of time as much with today's audiences where Poseidon Adventure would Earthquake because there's been so many other earthquake films and even what San Andreas with the rock, which I've never seen volcano movies and stuff that use modern special effects. I think that earthquake might, might suffer a little bit with modern audiences. You'd really have to kind of get in the mindset of 1974 technology. And once you're there, then yeah, you can enjoy it. And again, for us older guys, we, we get nostalgic when we see that kind of stuff. You mentioned Poseidon Adventure. One of the comparisons I'd like to make is that, you know, what they call a set piece, which is just a big sort of production within the movie where everything, a big event takes place, you know, in one location. Poseidon Adventure is full of those, you know, but Earthquake basically only has three. It's not much as much a survival movie, really. Um, and the one scene, which I I think it's the best scene in the movie, it's the most suspenseful, is... When they're in the skyscraper and they're going down the exit stairs and all of a sudden a floor is missing because of the earthquake. 
only one floor is missing, the, the next floor down. So they have to lower people down in a chair, yeah. you know, dangling over the side of the building. That's a really good scene. Um, I, I agree. I think that, that definitely still stands. Now, the other is the dam breaking, I would say. And then the other really is just towards the end when Charlton Heston is trying to jackhammer people that are trapped. And let me ask you this. Is the third basement level in a parking garage the best place to go for an earthquake? I was wondering the same thing. I'm like, I mean, I think it was explained, right, that that building was supposed to be earthquake proof. And it goes back to that earlier conversation where the, the, he, uh, Charlton Heston was arguing with the one guy and because Charlton Heston knew, it was like, well, no, that's, that's, we went cheap. I told you we should have done this. So it goes back to that, that that's why it should have been as it was publicized, but in reality they went cheap and that's why it wasn't. And that gives sort of, I in either case, it, though, either case, the answer is no. Yeah. <laughs> what did you think of Charlton Heston's, like, uh, moral crisis? I, I don't know. I thought it was a little pad or a little kind of silly. He's He, like, curses himself for building all these sky rises because this is what happens. And that kind of, kind of, we either never saw that indication that he was, like, reluctant about his job or so, something about that just seemed kind of out of the blue. It's Charlton Heston, though. I mean, it's like you get that. Charlton Heston has a thing that he does in most of his movies, right? Think about it. Ben-Hur, Ten Commandments, you know, definitely has some of those moments in The Omega Man, Soil and Green, Planet of the Apes, right? Those moments where he's just, he's Charlton Heston and he's just anguished and is like, damn you all to hell. (laughs) That's Charlton Heston and I love it, right? So that's, Almost like they they wrote that scene for him. Almost as like thinking like, yep, Chuck, just just do your thing right there. His moral battles comes into play in the in the final scene, and, and that's not heavy handed at all. I, I will, they're down in the sewer, and he's climbing up the ladder, and Denise is ahead of him, looking down wistfully at him and then Ava Gardner falls off the ladder and goes rushing down which way will he go and he makes would you say the right decision well so this was a conversation that Carla and I had so I want to talk about this is a good time to talk about the scene that they did not keep in the movie the doctor did have a bigger role in the film because originally Remy had an abortion. Oh. Charlton Heston, Stuart, her husband, thought that she lost the baby. She kept the abortion from him. She didn't want children. He did. She commit, She had the abortion and then told him she lost the baby and the doctor was in on it. That would have painted her. I mean, she was already a nagging wife. She was already scheming and, and stuff. That really painted her as a horrible person. Not the abortion part of it, not getting moral there, but the fact that she would do that and then lie to her husband. That's that's where I'm talking about. When you get to that final moment, if they would have kept that scene in, that would have made the final scene for me even more difficult to believe. That was too controversial. And even when they did the TV version, it was like clearly they couldn't add it back in. So I don't know if that footage still exists or not. 
I couldn't find it on, on YouTube, but it's, it was filmed apparently. Carl and I had this conversation and I thought I knew immediately because she's a woman in which way she would go with that. And Carla has been on the receiving end of, of being uh, cheated on in a previous relationship. Interestingly, though, she thinks that he made the wrong decision because she looks at it that Ava Gardner was not a nice person. She was she was a scheming person and he clearly wasn't going to stay with her. You know, he was clearly in love with Denise. She was in love with him. There was a potential there for him to be happy after years of unhappiness. I mean, there was, he just, he didn't want harm to come to his wife. But beyond that, I mean, he was done. He's willing to save her from pieces of the building coming crashing down. But, you know, there was no saving that marriage. It was done. Originally, he chose Denise. That was what was originally supposed to be filmed. Charlton Heston was like, nope, can't do it. That's morally wrong. And so he made it so that he that he attempted to save his wife and gets killed. I hated the ending. I didn't like I didn't like that choice. I felt it's tough. Not an easy choice in that situation, but the chance of him saving Ava Gardner was so slim. And then you've got the person that you want to be with right there. The flip side of that is, is if you don't save Ava Gardner, then you spend the rest of your life wondering, could I have saved her? I don't know. That's that's a tough thing. And, and part of me was like, he should have just chose Denise, especially considering how scheming and such she was. And she, you know, clearly the marriage was over. But on the flip side, could he have lived with himself if he didn't at least try? Yeah, and he I didn't think he was going to die. He didn't know he was going to be sacrificing himself. No, no. I mean, I mean, you know, it was it was definitely the odds were against him saving her. But no, I don't think he knew. Yeah, I don't know. I was like, I, I hated to see him die at the end. I, I just because I didn't like Ava Gardner's character. And I'm like, oh, my God, you're dying for Ava Gardner, you know. But I understand the moral dilemma. And if he would have chosen a niece, that would have been the wrong thing to do, but in the same token, that's who he needed to be with. Yeah. Kind of a, a tough call, I guess morally. Yeah. He probably made the right call, but hated to see his character not end up happy. What did you think about? I, I think gore is too strong a word, but there were some strong scenes. Any that you noted in particular or just any comment at all about them? I'm trying to remember of any gore scenes that really stood out. I mean... Well, the one that sticks out for me is the woman that gets glass in her face. Yeah, that's pretty brutal. And then there's a a sort of a silly scene where elevator crashes and then blood, (laughs) supposedly, but it's obviously animated or something, blood that covers the camera. Yeah, that was kind of cheesy. No, I mean... Yeah, you think by today's standards, they probably would have, you know, there might be a few more graphic deaths and stuff. I mean, these movies like a a particular scene, and that is a shot from above with someone falling back and then crashing on a big rectangular glass piece of something that Poseidon had it, this had it. It's just, you mentioned the soapy, soap opera sort of aspect. I thought it was interesting, the director, Mark Robeson, who started out, amazingly with Val Luton directing the seventh victim ghost ship. He made a couple Karloff movies, Isle of the dead bedlam, but then 
you know, he moved into Peyton Place in 1957, Valley yeah. of the Dolls in 1967. So there's sort of, he's got some experience with the, the cast and the soap opera type aspects of it. Yeah, kind of sad. He only did one more movie after this, uh, Avalanche Express in 79, and he died in post-production. He had a, um, I think it was a heart attack at the age of 64, died oh. in August 1978. What do you know about... Mario Puzo. I mean, not what do you know about him? We know he wrote The Godfather, supposedly screenplay, but from what I can guess, he had as much involvement in this as he did in Superman. I mean, did he just provide a framework or or something? I don't know. I mean, the only other... So it's Mario and George Fox. So George Fox, I'm wondering, is just a made-up name because that's the only film credit for George Fox. Hmm where there's just maybe people in the studio where there's a multiple people working on it. And they decided, well, we're just going to George Fox. That's, you know, that happens sometimes in films. It seems weird that this would be the only film credit for somebody with no other references. So I'm sure there's an earthquake expert out there who knows the story behind George Fox. If you do let us know, give it, fill us in. Cause I'm curious. I mean, Mario, obviously, yes. Godfather part one, two, and and three, Superman. Not a lot. I mean, Mario has got some big stuff to his name, but I mean, also not as much as you would think. When you've got The Godfather, really, is as, you know, what more do you need? That question mark in George Fox is like, who is that? I'm wondering, yeah, how much Mario had to do with it and, and where were the other writer or writers, you know, who is George Fox? or who were George Fox, that'd be the question to know. I mean, who else was involved in the writing? Because it might be pretty telling, you know, as far as who else had a hand in it, how much of the soap opera-esque aspect of it the other George Fox or other writers had. This had some Oscar nominations, not as many as Poseidon. It won two, sound and special achievement and special effects. When do we want to talk about Sense Around? Let's talk about it now. All right. Well, sound made me think of that. Basically, to me, since around was just big speakers with subwoofers or something that made the seats vibrate and gave you the sensation of being in in the earthquake. I actually saw this in since around in Oklahoma City. I remember at the time reading about how, you know, certain theaters, only certain theaters could be equipped with it. If it was an old building or something, you know, they were worried about it causing damage and Interestingly, though, the only place in Oklahoma City it was on in Cincerone was a really crappy theater. It was one of those theaters, uh, I can't remember the name of it, but they always showed the 70s exploitation movies like the Kung Fu and the horror films and everything. And that's where we went to see Earthquake. My mom and dad went to go see Earthquake. I was I was too little. You saw a lot of movies. Your parents were took you to a lot of stuff, whereas my mom and dad sheltered me from all these adult movies out there. And I don't know. That was a rare date night for them, I remember. They didn't do that too often because they had to go to Wichita. So we lived in Newton and they had to go to Wichita to see it. And so they had a night out on the town. And I remember both my mom and dad coming home and just talking about, oh my gosh, you know, you could felt like the earthquake was there and around us. And my mom especially really enjoyed the experience. 
Do you think it was really any different than what we have now with like good speakers? And well, speakers? I think, you know, we tend to forget that, you know, so many movies were, were in mono and then they became stereo and that sound wasn't, I mean, this was one of the first gimmicks, if you were, as far as sound goes, we were getting film gimmicks for years, you know, filmed in Panavision, filmed in this, filmed in that. But this was kind of the, I think the, almost the start, I think of the sound gimmicks that we still kind of get, right? It's like, you know, for so many years, THX was the thing, right? Theaters had to have the THX sound if they wanted to get movies from, from George Lucas. So that was, I think when the Star Wars prequel trilogy came out, there were theaters that had to have that sound technology, which coincidentally was, you know, created by George Lucas little money. Yeah, that's a nice little scheme. You want my movie? You have to have the sound. And that was the thing of choice for so many years, the iconic opening and, and the THX sound. And, and then of course, then something else replaced it. And I, you know, it's Dolby something or other now, you know, I, you know, there was only three other movies made in sense around Midway roller coaster and Battlestar Galactica. And so I think that for the time it probably was pretty impressive compared to what was in theaters, which was just normal speakers at that point. So this was a richer sound that just kind of cranked it to 11 and just caused the walls to shake, which is something we expect now, right? When we go see the Avengers in battle, I want to, I want to feel my intestines vibrate if I'm going to be part of this experience. Back then it was a gimmick, but it was also something better than the average theater. It was a little something extra. I read that it was always meant to be an event movie. And at one point they considered dropping styrofoam pieces from the ceiling during the <laughs> earthquake part. That would have been kind of funny. I thought that was interesting with the, the stereo though, because that really kind of played into the TV version. Common thing was when movies uh, came out in a the theater, right, was that they would eventually get shown on television back in the day. It was the Sunday night movie is where you saw the James Bond movies on ABC. They had, a, you know, obviously they would have to edit movies if there was language, nudity, violence. Sometimes, though, they needed extra footage to fill out a time thing. Star Trek, the motion picture, 1979, when it played on ABC television, you know, a year or two later, it had deleted scenes added to it to that's fill just in. what that movie needed was additional scenes <laughs> god <laughs> sorry <laughs> well yeah i you know i'm not gonna argue there although i do love that movie now yeah. more than i do back then <clears throat> it does have some very long scenes where visually stunning amazing music from jerry goldsmith but there ain't a whole lot happening but they had deleted scenes to flesh out a three-hour running time on television so with Earthquake, they needed extra footage to basically cover a two-night experience. It was two two-hour movies, basically two-part movie, two hours each, and they needed extra footage. And so they went through a lot of lengths to, to, to pull this off because the original movie was 123 minutes, and I'm trying to see in my notes if I have what the the television running time was, but I think they added like 20 minutes of footage as well as including some deleted scenes that were, was, was cut from the theatrical version. 
so they include a whole scene with with an airplane coming coming down and uh, introduce us to a couple characters there. Deborah Lee Scott, character actress from back in the day. I mean, these characters, basically, that's it. They get seen on the plane and you don't see them again, right? Uh, they're, they're newlyweds. We do get an extra scene with Victoria Principal and Marjo Joyner, the character Jody. He follows her home. So, like, it's inserted where before he goes back to his apartment, he apparently knows where she lives and, and he's a peeping Tom and he's looking outside the window. And then he knocks on the door and he gets in. And that's actually where we begin to see that he's he's a nutcase because he's like doing all this weird stuff in the apartment and like cleaning her stuff and then telling her to stay here. Don't leave this apartment. He says, I'll come back and I'll take care of you. She leaves anyway. And then when there's a scene like we see her on the street getting a cab or something, which is then she orders, she goes to the movies. That's inserted where after she leaves the guys at the at the track, she goes apparently back to her apartment and I guess takes a shower and then changes clothes and puts the same clothes back on that she had to begin with, um, <laughs> she, which she has like three or four different versions of the same shirt. So I guess that's where they, I guess you, that's the only thing she wears. And no bras. No bras. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's a very cheaply made apartment scene, but it just established him a little more. And earlier in the film that he's a nut job. And then we get a scene where there's a bunch of stock footage of a fire happening and it's from Hawaii Five-0, an emergency. And somebody says, this is horrible. And he gets his gleam in his eyes. It's like, oh, this is wonderful. It's fabulous. <laughs> so we, they added extra scenes to, to flesh out the running time. And for good or for bad, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it is what it is. For the time, though, it, it made it an event. It was a two-night event, and it was in stereo. So they couldn't do sense around at home, so they did stereo at home. Keeping in mind, we didn't have stereo TVs back then. They did a simulcast with local radio stations. And so you turn to Channel 3 and watch the movie, and then turn to Channel 103.7 and listen to the movie on your stereo system. That'd be kind of cool. That was a cool kind of cross-promotional gimmick and think about it. That would have been pretty awesome. I don't remember that. We may have done that. I just don't remember it. But I think that's a kind of a cool experience because that would have been, you know, unless you had your, I mean, and I'm sure people did, had their TVs hooked up to their stereo systems to get sound. I remember doing that in the 80s uh, or 90s before stereo TVs and all that stuff. I kind of did that uh, and hooked it up to like my auxiliary switch just to get a bigger sound. So I'm sure people did that in the seventies as well. I don't know. I thought that was kind of a cool cross promotional thing. I got to tell my story really quick about watching this. Uh, I have a shout factory Blu-ray and it's a two disc set and, you know, you open the case and the, the front has a little booklet or a little flyer or something in it, you know. So I opened it. I did not see that there was another disc there. And I thought, oh, it's Blu-ray. I wonder if this has both versions of the movie. And I thought maybe you could, you know, click and select. And so I put in the disc and up at the top, it said TV version. And I thought, oh, that's where I would click it to switch. And I'm like, I don't want to watch that. I want to watch the theatrical. 
Well, it started and it wasn't in widescreen. It was like very square, you know, full frame. And then there was that opening narration, which you so eloquently read at the beginning of this. And then the airplane scene. And I'm like, this is not, you know, this is the TV version. Sure enough, it was the theatrical version was hidden behind the flyer in the case. So I, I did not watch all of the TV version. Uh, I went right back to the, but I got to do a nice little comparison of like the first 20 minutes, what was in one and not the other. And I guess it's actually pretty cool that these TV versions still exist. What I read something about the fact that when Universal had its fire, a lot of the TV versions that Universal had um, got destroyed in the fire. So like the theatrical prints were fine, but the TV versions were stored somewhere else and they got destroyed in the fire. And so if there's a TV print available, and it might be the case with Earthquake, it it's not from the master print. It's from a copy. And in some cases, a copy that may have may have been like, as they send copies out to TV stations and syndication, that's where they would have pulled it from, was not from the original source material, but from the copy that they would have sent out in syndication. So there is some like, apparently some original television stuff that was lost in that universal fire. Like, I don't think that there was uh, any extra footage for beyond the Poseidon adventure or for Poseidon adventure, but I did read where airport 77 actually had a, a long version for TV. And I guess it was longer by almost an hour, but I can't, I couldn't find anything to explain what was included because apparently that version is kind of fallen off the face of the earth. Apparently it was, in syndication for TV stations in the 90s, but hasn't been seen since. I mentioned earlier, and I almost forgot to do it here, the other producer that was big in these disaster movies was Jennings Lang. He was a New York lawyer who turned into a Hollywood agent and made some pretty significant moves, did several with Clint Eastwood. He did play Misty for me in 71. I think High Plains Drifter maybe, which is interesting because that's the movie Victoria Principal goes to see yeah. uh, in the movie. And then, so he did all the airport sequels, 75, 77, 79, and Roller Coaster. He produced those. You always see his name at the beginning, just like you saw Irwin Allen with Poseidon Adventures. So Jennings Lane kind of associated with these disaster movies. I want to talk about Marjo Joyner, the character of Jody, uh, the actor who played jo- Jody, because he is an interesting person. I recognized him. He's a character actor. He, he appeared in, in television shows. He was actually, at the age of four, he was billed as the world's youngest ordained minister. And I'm going to read this from IMDb. Pentecostal preacher Hugh Marjo Ross Joyner became a miracle child extraordinaire. He was born on January 14, 1944 in Long Beach, California, and he ministered the gospel from memory and performed faith healings, drawing capacity crowds as he barnstormed throughout the Bible Belt. The son of Vernon Robert Gortner, an evangelical minister who preached at revivals, It was his mother, Marge, who pushed and introduced Marjo to the world as a boy preacher, and it was the primary reason for his success. At age 16, he grew acutely disillusioned with what he now 
uh, realized was nothing more than a horrible deception and decided to withdraw from the scene. The reason that he decided to reveal the deception was that a film crew approached him, and I guess somewhere along the way he admitted, well, yeah, it's all fake. So they he did a 1971 national tour of revival meetings. It was his farewell, but it wasn't really being billed as his farewell, but it was a documentary being filmed that was actually going to expose him as fake. Fascinating. It was an Oscar-winning documentary called Marjo in 1972 and exposed him as a fake evangelist. And like his parents didn't know what was going on. Mm. It was his decision to come out and basically reveal like, yeah, my life is a, is a fake. I'm, I'm not really a faith healer. That's how I'm being billed. Yeah. And then he goes into acting and never really has anything big. Food of the gods. Okay, but he's a supporting actor generally. He's not like an A-list. I know, I'm totally joking. Anyway, yeah, recognizable if you watched any TV or stuff in the 70s and 80s. He was always kind of a little bit of an odd character. When you're a four-year-old evangelist, that sets you on an interesting path. Unlike Victoria Principal, who did not have a wig, we'll talk about this, he does wear a wig, and that kind of throws me. At one point, he's like, you know, all of a sudden he's got straight hair and I'm like, what the heck happened? Did I miss something? He takes his wig off, which is explained that a lot of guys in the National Guard wear these so that they can look cool, but have to keep short hair for the National Guard. And I'm thinking, no, I'm thinking it's just because, <laughs> yeah, you're wanting, wacko. <laughs> yeah, you're wanting to send the lotion down to the person in the pit. Victoria Principal's hair in this looks absolutely like a wig. But she was on The Tonight Show while filming the movie, and Johnny Carson commented on her hair because he had seen her with straight hair, and she commented that it was real. I still question that, but she did come back and film the extra scenes, and her hair looked exactly the same, which to me, I've never seen her in any other other like pictures where she has the curly hair. I'm thinking it's a wig. Nonetheless, her appearance on The Tonight Show, Robert Blake and Fernando Lamas were the guests. And as soon as they know that she's coming out, there's comments about, well, let, let you know, go ahead and have her wiggle her way on out here. They're both being pigs by today's standards. And even by 1974 standards, they were being pretty misogynistic and just, yeah, typical guys, which feeds into Fernando Lamas from Esther Williams' story we talked about. Clearly a Mr. Macho Man. Women are supposed to be objects. And yeah, that was 1974. Doesn't fly in 2021. That's my story about the Reverend Jody and his uh, traveling salvation show. So I didn't know all that. That's crazy. I thought it was interesting. Again, we'll kind of go over some of the actors who were considered for roles in this movie because this was a big deal. Paul Newman and Steve McQueen were uh, offered roles, but they had to turn it down because they were in the Towering Inferno, which was filming at the same time. I don't know what part. I'm assuming maybe for the character of, of Stuart, Charlton Heston's role, maybe. Considered for the part of Denise was Elizabeth Montgomery, Candace Bergen, Jacqueline Bissett, Sharon Gless, 
Sandra Locke, Meredith Baxter, Kate Jackson, Susan St. James, and Susan Clark. Keep those names in mind when you consider that up for the part of Stuart Graff was John Voight, James Kahn, Burt Reynolds, and James Brolin. If any of those actors would have taken the role of Stuart Graff, they could not have played Ava Gardner's husband. Remy was, several actresses were up for the role of Remy, including Lee Grant, Jessica Walter, and Elizabeth Allen. Lee Grant, we will hear from in the next movie. They would have gone with a younger, they would have had to keep everybody younger. Up for the role of uh, Slade, as played by George Kennedy, included actors Bo Bridges, Alan Alda, Stacey Keach, James Brolin, Rock Hudson, John Cassavetes, Kevin Ty, and William Atherton. Definitely, this was a big production in Hollywood, and, and a lot of people were up for it. Uh, would have been interesting to see some of those people, I think, would have been interesting to see play the role. But it would have been, again, it would have been a domino effect. If you did this, then this and this character wouldn't have worked. I do feel you could have kept Charlton Heston and could have gone with one of these other actresses as Remy, like Lee Grant or something. But Ava Gardner played played the bitch rather well, I think. The age thing is all off there a little bit. Certainly with Lauren Green, they, they needed somebody older. And maybe even a little bit, I don't know, a little bit more uh, seedier or something to play her. I don't know. He just seemed too nice to have spawned yeah. her. I don't know. <laughs> that's that's Ben Cartwright after all. It just <laughs> wrong. That's all I've got. All right. Yeah. I don't know what else to say. It's available for rent on Amazon Prime, the theatrical version. Two different versions on Blu-ray. You can get the movie only for $15 or pay a dollar at Dollar General, like I <laughs> for Dollar Tree. Dollar Tree. Paid a buck for it. No extras, though, so just the movie. Or the collector's edition, which is what you've got. It's currently going for $22. That'll give you bonus features and two versions of the film. Let's go ahead and see what happened after Earthquake. Again, 74, the peak. We start going a little bit downhill. We had the Hindenburg in 1975. We also had the first spoof of a disaster movie called The Big Bus in 1976. All-star cast again, but a, a comedy about a disaster on a big bus. Have you ever seen that? No. It has been a long, long time. I, I, I take that back. It was. It played when I worked at the at the uh, video store. It, it was playing on the television, so I remember it playing, and and I remember people complained about. It. I was like, "What is this movie? You should be playing something else." Well, at the main store, we had to play what the owners wanted. At the the satellite stores, we picked out what we wanted to watch. Yeah, I would like to see that again. It's available from Warner Archive. It's on sale, the DVD for twelve ninety five. Oh. I should have mentioned this. I, I did have one more little tidbit. There was actually talk of a, of a sequel to Earthquake. Um, a script was put together. It would have brought back the character of Miles. So I kind of always thought he died, but I guess we didn't really see him die. He was on his motorcycle. Uh, so he and his partner did make it. His partner kind of disappears, right? I mean, he he drops the people off at the shelter and gets in his car, and I don't think he pops up in the movie again. Mm. And George Kennedy and Victoria Principal apparently ended up as a couple, and everybody is now in San Francisco. <laughs> and another earthquake happens to plague the poor city, and and of course, they've been through an earthquake. They'll know what to do. 
it never got past the script phase. The script was written and I don't even think it got into pre-production. Wiser heads prevailed and determined that Earthquake 2 was not the smart move. There's no way that movie would have been anywhere close to successful, I don't think. The gimmick uh, would have been gone. You would have had to come up with something else. Sense Around wouldn't have been able to be a thing two movies in a row. So I think Wiser heads. 76 brought the Cassandra Crossing. I think that's about a takes place on a train, maybe a runaway train or something. 1977 also, or 76 also, Two Minute Warning, and then Black Sunday in 1977. Both of those are about sort of smaller disasters within an arena or a stadium. I think Two, two Minute Warning, there's a sniper, and Black Sunday, isn't that when they Goodyear blimp or something? Yes, yeah, yeah. We're, we're stretching it a little bit. Roller Coaster, we mentioned in 1977. And then Damnation Alley, they consider as a, a disaster. I guess it's a future apocalyptic thing right. in the list. And in 1977, our next movie, Airport 77. Let's watch the trailer and come back and talk about that. Sounds good. Something's wrong. Flight 23 Sierra, a private 747. The luxurious plaything of one of the world's wealthiest men. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm glad you could join us. I've lost contact with 23 Sierra. The passengers, a collection of the rich and the beautiful. He's just not here. The cargo, a priceless fortune in art. Well, they're in the Bermuda Triangle. And now, Flight 23 Sierra is off course and in trouble. Is Airport 77. Drown in here. Nobody is going to drown. The plane is pressurized. Have you radioed for help? Radios don't work underwater, but our course has been tracked on radar and they know exactly where we went down. What'll we do? Calm down. Run out of air for I said calm down! An unforgettable adventure. An all-star cast. Starring Jack Lemon. Brenda Vaccaro. Chambers flew us a couple of hundred miles off course. The search planes will never look for us here. There's no chance of We're on our own. Lee Grant. Christopher Lee. We're us. We're us. They're a bunch of strangers. That's your problem. You think everybody is us. Joseph Cotton. Olivia de Havilland. <laughs> Darren McGavin. Any increase in pressure will crush this fuselage like an empty beer can. George Kennedy and James Stewart as Philip Stevens. My daughter and my grandson are on that plane. Don't get too close to the door. This is Navy Search Base. Go ahead, Navy Search 5. I've located the aircraft at coordinates given. The aircraft is completely submerged. I want this to be a first stage alert. It could be helos, scuba teams, compressors, air hose packages, the works. I want this treated exactly like an emergency sub-salvage operation. The tradition of motion picture excitement continues. Airport 77. Bigger, more exciting than Airport 75. 
bad weather and an in-hair heist gone wrong land a prototype executive aircraft from Stevens Corporation underwater in the Bermuda Triangle with its high-profile passengers fighting to survive. We are back and ready for our third and final movie, 1977's Airport 77. Trying to look back and figuring out which year we've done and haven't done, as I say, I should have a list at this point. I think we may have done 1977 before. Some of it sounds familiar, some of it doesn't. So if we've done this before, I'm sorry, we're going to do it again. 1977, what was happening in the world? Well, the average rent was $240, but you could buy a bikini for just $9. You could buy a new stereo system for $247, and a five-inch black-and-white portable television was $147. There was, of course, the New York City blackout that lasted for 25 hours. It resulted in 4,500 looters being arrested, 550 police officers being injured, and an undetermined amount of babies nine months later. (laughs) It was the year of... Technology, we had the Atari 2600 being released in September. We had the Commodore computer being introduced in January. And the Apple II went on sale on June 5th for either $1,300 up to $2,600, depending on memory capacity. The U.S. returned the Panama Canal to Panama. And here's an interesting little side story Carla was born in Panama in 1963, and she lived there while there was a kind of some political strife. And it, Panama was, I guess, kind of a hotbed for a long period of time, and clearly up to 1977. Her dad was in the military, and apparently there was some uprisings. It was making all the news. Her and her mom kind of had to sneak out of the country. A neighbor basically helped her mom and and Carla like get out of the neighborhood, backseat of the car, ducked below because there was gunfire happening to get them, uh, I believe, to to the base or to the airport so they could basically get the heck out of Dodge. Made the front page of the newspaper uh, in Independence. We just got those stacks of newspaper the other day from January of 64. And Carla and her mom made the front page of the newspaper for escaping the the crisis in Panama. 1977, Panama was no longer ours. Jimmy Carter was sworn in as the new U.S. president. The last execution by guillotine happened in France. That seems way late for that. Here's an interesting connection point to Airport 77. There were two 747 jumbo jets that collided in the Canary Islands. Of the four airport movies, the planes featured in three of the four movies would be eventually involved in uh, crashes, except for the movie we're watching, which I I think it's a 707. Um, That was never involved in a crash. A little bit of trivia for you. Popular TV shows of the day, Happy Days, Sanford and Son, and The Love Boat. From the world of cinema, we had Star Wars premiering on May 25th. Saturday Night Fever premiered in December. Other popular films of the day included Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Smokey and the Bandit, The Spy Who Loved Me, The Car, Suspiria, 
Kingdom of the Spiders, Shockwaves, and The Exorcist to the Heretic. Popular songs of the day, Hotel California by the Eagles, I'm Your Boogeyman by Casey and the Sunshine Band, Margaritaville by Jimmy Buffett, and yes, the song we all love to sing. And this is why I think we did 1977 before, Don't Give Up on Us by David Soul. You remember that now. I, I know. That's what I'm thinking we covered. But some of this other stuff I don't remember talking about. That's what was happening or some of the things that were happening in 1977. And also on March 11th of that year, we got the third film in the airport franchise, Airport 77. You didn't mention in the top hits a song called Beauty is in the Eyes of the Beholder by Tom Sullivan. That would have been bubbling under the hot 100. I think it peaked at number 103. (laughs) Uh, We'll talk more about that later. Uh, So similar to Poseidon Adventure, there is a scene in Airport 77 with a lounge singer. He happens to be blind. And the song did not reach the notoriety that the morning after did, though, with Poseidon Adventure. Shocking. Airport 77, sequel of sorts, I suppose, to Airport more... I guess it's a sequel. So the the one character that ties through all of those is George Kennedy's. Let's just go, let's go through the characters as we have done and and we'll come back to him. So leading the cast, we have Jimmy Stewart playing Philip Stevens. He's the head of the Stevens Corporation and he's flying a bunch of guests down for a big museum opening on his prototype executive aircraft. He has hired a pilot, Don Gallagher, played by Jack Lemmon. He's having a relationship, not Jimmy Stewart, but Jack Lemmon with Eve Clayton, played by Brenda Vaccaro and her husky voice. <laughs> he works for Stevens, and he wants to run off and get married with her. He wants wife and children. She's not quite ready for that yet. She wants a year off to kind of prove herself working for Stevens over in Europe somewhere. I don't recall. I think she had been married before and had a bad marriage or something, so she okay. wasn't really. She mentions, been there, done that. Didn't have a success with it. Stan Buchek is played by Darren McGavin. He's really good in this. I enjoyed that. He's Stevens, and he says that he spent the better part of a year working on this project, this developing this prototype aircraft. We have somebody called Banker, played by Monty Markham. He is a mysterious character who switches briefcases with somebody in the gift shop, then goes into the men's bathroom at the airport and dons a disguise. He then boards the airplane as a waiter, and it turns out he's in a conspiracy to oh, basically steal the con- the cargo of this plane, which is a bun- bunch of expensive and valuable artwork. I always love when I see him in anything because he immediately takes me to the $6 million man because he was Barney Miller or Hiller, depending on the episode. He was the $7 million man. I always love seeing him because that's we got some big iconic battles between him and, and Steve Austin. I remember the scene where Steve gets challenged to an arm wrestling thing and he's like, okay, I'm going to make easy work of this guy. And then realizes this guy's bionic also. There's another $6 million man connection, which we'll probably mention shortly. Mm-hmm. We have Lisa played by Pamela Bellwood. I remember her from Dynasty. She is Stephen's daughter and the mother of Benji, played by Anthony Battaglia. She hasn't seen her father for two years. They're somewhat estranged. 
Eve has to have a little chat with her and say, cut your father a little bit of a break. He's dying and doesn't have much longer to live. So she has reason to survive and be reunited with her father. We have Emily Livingston, played by Olivia de Havilland. She is an art benefactor who likes to play poker. She's accompanied by her lady servant, Dorothy, played by Mady Norman. Dorothy works for her, and she also helps take care of the two children, Lisa's son, Court Benji, getting these kids mixed up. And then another girl, and I did not know who that girl or her mother. I don't know what actors they are. Perhaps you can tell. Pretty significant role. The daughter is injured badly, and you know the mother is, is worried about her. Do you know who they are? So I know the mother. Uh, the character's name is Jane Stern. Played by actress Arlene Golanka. Oh, um, Arlene Golanka, sure. <laughs> She's kind of a familiar character actress, kind of plays usually like girlfriend-wife characters. I remember her, I think, from, I think it was Mayberry RFD, which was the spinoff sequel to The Andy Griffith Show. When Andy decided it was time to leave, Ken Berry comes in. He's the mayor of the town and basically is the new Andy and I want to say her character name was Millie, maybe, and she played his girlfriend in that. She kind of played those kind of parts. If you've watched any television from the 70s, you probably saw her in something or another. And we have the aforementioned Tom Sullivan playing Steve, the blind lounge singer. I don't recall Julie's relationship with him. Julie Kathleen Quinlan stares at him while he plays and it was she his sister or just a groupie or what not sister because i think he he was he was in love with her i think he confesses at one point well i mean (laughs) well okay (laughs) yes that changes the movie entirely no he kind of confesses like right before he dies and she can't say that she returns the love and then he dies and we don't get enough. It's like you talk about sometimes getting too much character development in Earthquake. I would have liked to know more, a little bit more about those two characters. Two or three lines would have all that would have been needed to kind of flesh their characters out a little bit. That might have made his death a little more impactful if we would have understood the dynamics going on between those two. Martin Wallace, played by the great horror icon Christopher Lee. He's some type of underwater specialist with conservation or, or something like that. The important thing about him is he has scuba diving experience, and that's going to come into play later on in the movie. He is married to the third woman in three movies. That is, uh, I call the bitch wife, Karen Wallace, played by Lee Grant. She's the equivalent of Remy from Earthquake. She's having an affair with... Christopher Lee's assistant, played by Gil Gerard, and she has such gems of lines like when uh, her husband is just leaning at the bar watching the lounge singer talking to somebody totally innocently. She strolls up and says, I don't mean to intrude, but could you move your ass, dear? So she's uh, <laughs> comical, lovable, lovable, but nasty wife. She's a nasty wife. She's nastier almost than the character of Remy from Gardner's character. I think not knowing, of course, the abortion storyline that we didn't get to see that 
which would have elevated her to be the winning bitch of the movies. I don't know. Lee Grant, though, she does get knocked out at one point. Was it Brenda Vaccaro, I think, hits her, I think, at one point. That was certainly nice to see because she was just out of control. And I don't know when, maybe jumping ahead a little bit, but when a certain character passes... I didn't feel sorry for her at all because she was just mean to him the entire movie. And I'm like, I don't care that you're crying. I, somebody yet, you know, I don't care that you're suffering. You know, I don't know. I just, her character was a bitch. She was just mean. Yeah. And not any redeeming values. Yeah. I love some of the dialogue between Christopher Lee and her after they crash and He's going to go help. She asks him not to leave her. And he says, I'm sorry, my dear, but the doctor needs me. And he does then, kiss her though, right? I mean, I'm like, so obviously he cared for her, well, I guess, in a way. And I'm like. It's out of obligation, don't you think? I mean, that's how Charlton Heston was in Earthquake. I, mean, I thought the same thing as a similarity there. It's like, all right, yeah, you're married to the battle axe, but I love you. And then I love this line that she says to him before he goes on his mission, I suppose. You've got a lot of brains, but you're not a smart man. Yeah. We have veteran character actor M. Emmett Walsh plays Dr. Williams, who after helping as many people as he can reveals, yeah, he's a doctor, but of animals, he's a vet. And then George Kennedy, like I mentioned, playing Joe Petroni. Now, if you've only seen this movie, you're not going to know who the heck this guy is. They don't waste one second explaining why he's there, why he comes in. He just comes in late in the movie to kind of help from air traffic control figure out where the plane is and how they three, get it. It's a whopping three scenes and less than two minutes of screen time. He's pointless. But he's supposedly in all the other airport movies. He is. He he. Uh, I, I do know that he had a much bigger role in the original, and then in Airport seventy five, and then to kind of pay him back for virtually nothing to do in this one, he becomes the pilot of the Concorde. At least at some point, he's seen in the trailer as they're turning the Concorde into a jet fighter. He's seen piloting it. I watched the trailer to that. Yeah, I mean, it connects the movies, but that's an incredibly loose connection. Yeah, so the sort of bizarre disaster that happens is that they, they try this heist on the plane. It it's, goes wrong. There's bad weather. They disappear in the Bermuda Triangle. And Bermuda Triangle, very trendy in the 70s. So, you know, we're capitalizing on multiple uh, popular items here in this movie before anything really bad happens they've already got people searching for them so that's going to be a plus later on but it's foggy uh, the co-pilot who we find out oh i didn't mention him robert foxworth he's in on it he swerves to miss what was that an oil rig or something in the ocean yeah yeah it's it's really foggy so he's they're flying as you said low and you can't see where he's going and then all of a sudden bam, there's the oil rig and he can't move quick enough and ends up hitting one of the wings and the engine is on fire. Yeah. And so it's going to crash into the ocean and sink to the bottom. Now, this is very interesting. I've always remembered this movie like they're deep at the bottom of the ocean. They're not deep at all. The helicopters that fly over the next day can see it right there. It looks like just under the surface. I mean, they're basically on like a, a, a rock, cliff thing like they just oh. just happened to land at the right spot 
because it starts to shift at yeah. some point. And so okay. they're basically, if it shifts off this thing, then they're really screwed. There's no way they're going to save them. You did miss two characters. Oh. One big one and one small, but I'm going to mention it because it's a oh, starter. Oh, Nicholas St. Downs the third. Yes, Joseph Cotton, well-known actor. And uh, one of the, uh, I think it's, so we mentioned Monte Markham playing the character of Banker. The guy he's working with, Wilson, played by Michael Pataki, kind of a character, television actor. He played a Klingon in the second season Star Trek episode, Trouble with Tribbles. He is the one, for my my Trekkie fans out there, he's the Klingon. I don't think we ever got a name from him, but he's the one that gets into a fight with Scotty in the bar. He's the one that calls the Enterprise a garbage scow, and Scotty is like, you know, can you repeat that, laddie? Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, I was wrong. You know, he says, you know, it's not hauling garbage. It should be hauled away as garbage. And then Scotty, like, loses his... His uh, his haggis and goes ahead and knocks him out. And anyway, that's my another Star Trek connection. Yes, and I did mean to mention Joseph Cotton. He is an old quote friend of Olivia de Havilland's, and yes. doesn't have a lot to do. He's looking really old here. I don't know if that has anything to do with it, but he he's a nice little companion for Olivia de Havilland to hold hands with while the world's going to hell. I think he was used more for name recognition back at that time. He would have, you know, older actor, older fans rather would have recognized his name from other films. And so that's sometimes that's why they bring some of these stars in, right, for the name recognition. So he doesn't, yeah, he, you're right, he doesn't do much. Uh, it is interesting to note, though, and we'll mention some others, but when you think of how nice his character was, and you think of the character of Emily Livingston, Joan Crawford was offered the role of Emily Livingston, typical Joan Crawford. She turned down the role because she would have only had one week to prepare, and that's barely enough time, you know, and she was asked to wear her own clothes. (laughs) Clearly. I also read that there wasn't enough time to do a screen test. And I'm like, honey, do you think they did screen tests for a movie like airport 77? I mean, exactly. I was like, yeah, you know, they're, they're, they're bringing you in and just read the line. So I, you know, when I saw like Olivia de Havilland playing poker, to me, that seemed really weird for, for how she was perceived in the rest of the film. But then I'm, when I read that about Joan Crawford, I'm like, I wonder if they wrote that with Joan Crawford in mind, because I could see Joan Crawford being brash like that. But I can't see her like gushing over Joseph Cotton. So whereas Olivia de Havilland did that really well. I mean, she just shifted when she saw him as like, it was interesting. I'm, I'm, I'd love to know at what point when they wrote that character, they, they obviously had her in mind. She obviously had other things to do. Let's talk about this airplane. Very high tech. There's a camera in the cockpit so that the passengers can see the the takeoff. I thought that was going to come back and play a part at at some point. I I thought, why have that technology and just show it and then not like use it later? That could have been really clever. There's also Pong. The kids can play Pong on there. And then do you want to tell us about the other high tech technology they use? Well, yeah, they had a video message from uh, Jimmy Stewart on board this very luxurious plane. Let's talk about this plane. 
you know, you always see these really luxurious planes. Every plane I've ever been on is a sardine can. <laughs> I have sat in first class once, and yes, it is a little different. You're in the spot for, for two people that's normally reserved for three. And I remember getting served uh, a meal actually on silverware. Uh, it was a sandwich, you know, but it was a it was a nice sub sandwich on real silverware. Yeah, it was it was a very once in a lifetime kind of deal. Nonetheless, the video message from Jimmy Stewart was played on a. Uh, it looked like a floppy disk. It was essentially an early precursor to DVDs. Before was, we had DVDs, no, I thought it was a laser disc. Well, that's what I'm saying. So before we had DVDs. We had laser discs, which were the size of an album, a vinyl record for you hipsters out there. I was familiar with what was called Disco Vision, which is where the disc was inside a plastic case that had like the sticker on it that looked kind of like an eight track, which I know the hipsters will know because eight tracks are cool again. And they shouldn't be because eight tracks were a horrible bit of technology. But I don't remember a floppy disc. This was a a custom-built early version of the video disc player. It was a Magnavox Magnavision VLP optical video disc player. It was owned by somebody, I believe, from the studio. They had it custom-built. So it was kind of a almost like a test model for other versions that would come out. These large-style uh, video discs, at this period of time, I mean, you had to have a lot of money to have those. I mean, the average person didn't have any home recording technology until VHS players or Betamax. And even in the 90s, did you ever have video discs? I did. When I worked for the video store company, I had one for a short time. In the 90s, I, we did not. But I, the time, you know, I know that I would remember seeing them out and about I mean, I, I had invested so much in a VHS, I, and I wasn't really staying up on the in technology. But I know that that video discs, they were for collectors. They never really hit mainstream. DVDs changed everything. And then Blu-rays to a lesser extent. DVDs still sell today because there's a lot of more casual collectors that have never upgraded to Blu-ray or even now 4K ultra high def. But DVD was a huge upgrade over VHS. But the Laserdisc was essentially DVD technology. There were things that came out on Laserdiscs that still haven't come out on home media today, actually. They didn't have like all the extras, but they had a lot of the technology and the picture quality was obviously better. Kind of cool seeing that. And I, again, I don't know that the floppy disk version, I don't think that that was commercially available. I think that was a custom thing. And coincidentally, the stewardess wasn't instructed on how to play the machine and she plays it wrong. Apparently she doesn't close the thing all the way and she hits the wrong buttons. No one's going to notice that unless they had one of those machines. And well, I didn't. So I didn't catch that, but kind of cool to see that technology. That kind of caught me off guard. I was thinking, wow, I did 77, but that's about the time that we started seeing that pop up. Yeah. And it wasn't so much that technology of them playing it. I thought, oh, she's going to put in a movie. It, it's that that he would film a short little two minute greeting on one of those big old discs. And 
you know, the technology to put it on the disc seems more complex than the actual. Well, and, and yeah, but I mean, you just look at the plane. I mean, he put so much money well, into the yeah, plane. Yeah. I mean, we get these spiral staircases going up to the next level and it's like a, a, a yacht almost in, in a yacht in, in space. I'd love to be on a plane like that. Yeah, that, that, you've got a bar and office space and, and all sorts of extra stuff. So very, very cool. Let's talk about the writers. We have uh, Michael Sheff, David Spector, Hal Craig, and Charles Kunstel. Kind of all across the board here. So Michael Sheff, this was his first credit. Did lots of TV after that. David Spector had two credits to his name. This movie and a 1974 film called Skyway to Death. Hal Craig... This was his next to last film of nine credits, and I didn't really catch any of the other titles. I didn't; they didn't really stand out. Charles Kunstel or Kunstel was a TV actor and had four writing credits, including Death Race from 1973. This was his last writing credit, by the way. I mean, lots. I mean, not a lot of, of well-known writers on this. I mean, basically this being a third film in a franchise at this point, I think you're just kind of getting the writing equivalent of a character actor, basically a writer for hire at this point. The director is Jerry Jameson. Nobody knows who Jerry Jameson is, but he did do stuff, lots of TV work, a movie called The Bat People, which I've never seen, but I'm, I've seen that pop up quite frequently. He did some $6 million man. He did the Deadly Tower. He did Superdome and did Raise the Titanic. So he, he did do a few other things of, of note, so to speak. But again, not a lot you know, of, of name recognition for the, the writers or the director, which kind of follows a pattern in all of these three films. Produced again by Jennings Lang. This still bringing in big box office. It was the 19th highest grossing movie of 1977. However, its legacy is that it is in the Razzie Hall of Fame. And it's not nearly that bad to be oh, no. in the Hall of Fame. I mean, the idea of a plane going underwater and not drowning. Okay. Yeah, that's not 100% believable, obviously. But it's explained millionaire put a lot of money into this plane and I guarantee you there's probably some planes out there that could go underwater and withstand the pressure that is not sinking to the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, it's a coincidence that we just have a little rock shelf in just the right spot, but it worked for the movie. I think that what saves this movie from maybe could have gone down a, a Razzie path Again, is a great cast. Jack Lemmon, not very fond of this film. He regrets making it, but I thought he put in a great performance. I love Jack Lemmon. Uh, Lee Grant, good job playing the horrible character. I like Brendan Vaccaro. Darren McGavin, man, I love anything he's in. He is so good. Of course, Christopher Lee agreed to do this movie so he could act with Jack Lemmon. Did his own stunt, by the way where he, we see him floating. That was actually him. He did his own stunt. And I guess he earned a something called a stuntman's belt buckle, hmm. which I guess goes to when somebody, like your first stunt, apparently you get some type of thing. 
I don't know. I've never heard of that before. You've got some familiar faces that would be TV actors around this time running. You know, Robert Foxworth was Jason, Jason Gioberti on Falcon Crest. Of course, Gil Gerard was a year away from being Buck Rogers in the 25th century. Obviously, then you had the other flip side. You had people like Joseph Gotten and Olivia de Havilland bringing in the old guard, you know, coming in and, and being there for name recognition and Jimmy Stewart as well. He doesn't have a big part in the movie, but he is seen throughout the film and is there when they pull off the big rescue at the end, which they make a point of saying the accident is not real, but the, what, what had they worded? The, uh, I can tell you exactly because okay. I, I wrote it to include, it says the incident portrayed in this film is fictional. The rescue capabilities utilized by the Navy are real. Absolutely. I mean, and they do. I mean, they use that with the, the USS Cayuga. They actually had, you know, real life naval officers. They gave them a couple lines to say. It was pretty obvious they couldn't act, but that's okay. Uh, very realistic, actually, very realistic in how they went about the rescue. And using the basically the balloon-like technology to try to lift up the plane, yeah, maybe pushing the believability a little bit, but I don't know. I kind of thought that it totally would have worked. So, I did. Um, and they, I think they mentioned that that technology was usually used for salvage, but you know, here they were using it on this plane, and they had a very quick amount of time. Right? Again, similar to the Poseidon adventure, water. Not the friend of the people on board. The water's coming in. They got to get out. Had that moment, right, where Brenda Vaccaro gets sucked back in the plane. Jack Lemon goes in and Carla's sitting there and she says, they better not kill off, you know, these two. She says, I didn't, I wish she wasn't happy with Charlton Heston biting a bullet in the in an earthquake. And so thankfully, Don Gallagher and, and uh, Eve Clayton got out of the plane. I was worried there for a minute. I would not have been... Not have been a happy moment for Carla. The characters get out, the ones who, who need to get out. And I don't think anyone could have been left in the plane. There's not an option for Airport 77 Part 2 or beyond Airport 77. I don't think there would have been any options for that. Yeah, but, it's, for us uh, horror fans, it's kind of nice. Christopher Lee's the one that makes the sacrifice. He does. And, he, you know, again, he's just got a supporting role, but I, it's Christopher Lee. Come on. He, he did such a good job. And, and I thought, uh, well, and we got to mention, much like the Poseidon Adventure, we had five Academy Award winning actors in this film. Jack Lemmon, Lee Grant, Olivia de Havilland, George Kennedy, and Jimmy Stewart. Again, an amazing cast and a fun film. I, I, I enjoyed this one, again, a lot better than I thought I was going to. Yeah, and it's not really as far-fetched. I mean, an airplane is airtight, right? I mean, even in the air. So if that cart hadn't rolled and hit the side and put a gash in the plane, I don't know that the situation would have been as urgent. I mean, I get the pressure eventually crushing them and all of that, but I don't know. It wasn't so far-fetched. No, I didn't think so either. I mean, The one thing I wondered, though, especially when I saw how not deep it was, why didn't they just all go out? And float up to the surface? Um, that's a good question. Yeah. Well, the one guy with a bad leg wouldn't have been able to do it. And yeah. Uh, they needed I mean, Shelly Winters to help carry him out. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, that's a good question. I didn't think about that. I do know, like, you know, compared to, like, the plot of Airport isn't about, like, isn't there, like, a bomb or something on yeah, the plane? Yeah, hijacking, I think. When you look at, like, what happens in, like, Airport 75 and Airport 79, what happens in Airport 77 looks totally believable. What I'm seeing in the trailer for Airport 75 looks ridiculous. The Concorde getting flown around like a jet plane doesn't make any sense to me. I think Airport 77 definitely does not deserve a Razzie. Come on, people. There had to have been... Was it was it winning the award for 77 or was it like a post? No, I think it was a post because it's the Hall of Fame. So I don't know. Okay, now, I, now really I, I would really disagree with that. I was like, <laughs> seriously? Out of all the movies made, you decide to choose Airport 77? Come on. Uh, can I introduce you to the incredible petrified world? <laughs> the wild women of Mesa... Mesa, whatever that movie. I mean, come on. There's that's that's weird. I disagree. I protest. So, what else do you want to say about it? Oh, I, I have one other actor I didn't mention that has a very bit part. Jack Lemmon's son, Chris Lemmon. He plays one of the oh people on the radio on the Navy search team, I believe. Yeah, I, I you know I enjoyed this a lot. This I'm pretty sure was a first time view for me. I don't recall seeing this one. If I did I, I don't think I watched it from beginning to end. Like I said, I know that I did watch the very first airport, but I don't think I, I really don't think I've seen any of the others. And honestly, after watching the other trailers, I don't think that I, I really want to see any of the others. Although maybe, maybe airport 75, cause it's got Charlton Heston and that movie just looks batshit crazy. That might, that might be worth checking out just for, for giggles and grins. Uh, oh, I want to say that the music was by John Kakavas. Yeah. And sure. I, just of the three movies and considering John Williams did the music on the first two, I thought this was the best score, actually. It was the most rousing and energetic kind of music. I really enjoyed it. I'd agree. Yeah, I'd agree. I enjoyed this one more than I thought I would. I went in with lower expectations because I just kind of thought third film in a franchise and it's going underwater in the Bermuda triangle, which really didn't play nah. any part. They, but they put it in there because at this point in time, the Bermuda triangle was, there was all the hype behind it. Right. The plane is going down and the Bermuda triangle, which doesn't mean a damn thing. That's <laughs> where it's at. And they even mentioned it at one point that it's gone down in the Bermuda triangle. And then that's it. This movie is available for rent on Amazon Prime, or you can get it in the four-film Blu-ray set, Airport, The Complete Collection, where you can get all four films for just $35. Not a bad price if you want to watch the Airport series. I enjoyed this one. This is my second favorite of the three. Hmm. I don't know if I put it in front of Earthquake or not. I might. I don't know. Yeah, I definitely put it above Earthquake. Again, I would watch all three again, though. I was unsure what to expect from the, the disaster thing. I'll admit there was a part of me that was a tad worried that I wasn't sure how these movies would hold up. I was pleasantly surprised, and I would love to do a second disaster episode. I think there certainly is movies we could choose. 
Definitely got into Towering Inferno. Towering Inferno. In fact, Carla wondered why we weren't doing Towering Inferno. She was actually, I was just, I, you know, was surprised. Carla doesn't really remember Airport 77. She did remember Earthquake, and she definitely remembered Poseidon Adventure. She knew what was going to happen throughout that movie. She surpassed me on that. I mean, we could easily do the Towering Inferno and Beyond the Poseidon Adventure if we wanted to, to do that. But there's definitely, I think, others we could choose to add to the Towering Inferno. There will be a sequel, I think. I love these movies I always have, and I was really looking forward to doing this. Maybe maybe next year for your birthday. Your birthday month, we could We we have to wait a year, I guess. Well, it was sort of downhill after this, though. In 1978, we had Avalanche, Grey Lady Down, Hurricane, and The Swarm. 1979, we had City on Fire, the Concord Airport 79, Beyond the Poseidon Adventure, and Meteor. That's one we should do when we do the others, is Meteor. I kind of want to do a Sean Connery month, because uh, we could do Zardoz, (laughs) Meteor, and uh, Outland. Hmm. Which is 81, almost out of our wheelhouse, but we've done movies in the 80s and before. I... I think that would be kind of fun to do a Sean Connery month. So, yeah. And then I mentioned before when time ran out, that was the, the last one really, and time had run out on the disaster movies. Ha ha ha. But interestingly, in 1980, and I think this is when you know you have reached the the maximum you can do, and that's when you start making fun of it. And granted, some of those later movies probably were sort of almost unintentionally parodying the earlier ones, but this one purposely did Airplane from 1980. And then that spawned a whole new subgenre of its own. Just interesting to kind of bookend it uh, with Airport and Airplane. I have fond memories of watching Airplane at the Crest Theater in uh, Wichita, Kansas. It was the largest screen in Wichita. It was a You've heard me talk about the Crest before. It was a grand theater with a balcony and these beautiful murals on the side. It's where I saw Superman the movie. Uh, I saw Tootsie there and saw Airplane, actually. Actually remember, it was an afternoon matinee showing of of Airplane. I love going to that theater, and it saddens me that that movie theater was not saved. It ended up getting tore down for a parking lot. Airplane 2, the sequel had William Shatner in it. Another Star Trek reference there. I think he played a, a shuttle captain or something. I remember there was a gag scene where he was like looking in this like periscope thing and saw the Enterprise zoom by or something. And he pulls back and he gives a look. Or <laughs> so I do want to mention just briefly that in the 70s also, there were a lot of TV disaster movies. And a lot of times they would have a counterpart that was the theatrical. So we had TV movies about earthquakes and burning buildings, and that was quite its own little cottage industry as well. And then, of course, the disaster movies have been revived in the era of CGI, where nothing is left to the imagination, and there have just, you've mentioned some of them earlier. The disaster movie will endure. It will always be with us. I I really enjoyed 2012 the day after tomorrow, they're some of my favorites. I've not seen San Andreas with The Rock. I've almost pulled the trigger a couple of times. I haven't been able to do it. And there's was a couple of volcano movies. 
at one point i remember when it was tommy lee jones dante's and, peak and volcano and, uh, i think armageddon you know definitely in fact I, I was chastised by carly the other day for not having that movie in my collection and i said well i did i had armageddon on vhs and umd talking about do you remember umd was yeah. the uh, you know the little psp yep I had that, and uh, that was a weird, you know, why would you buy a movie thing to play? Well, I took it to work, and I would watch it uh, while I was at work doing my, before I was working from home, uh, I was listening to podcasts, and I could prop it up, and I had, I didn't have a lot of movies, but I had Armageddon, and I watched it quite a bit, and then I always thought the picture was quite good for the technology at the time, yeah. so. But I don't own it on DVD or Blu-ray. I have been told I need to get that. That's Carlo likes that movie. So I guess that wraps it up. Let's uh, take one last break and we'll come back and conclude with our new business. Your attention, please. Earthquake will be shown in the startling new multi-dimension of Sensorround. Please be aware that you will feel as well as see and hear realistic effects such as might be experienced in an actual earthquake. The management assumes no responsibility for the physical or emotional reactions of the individual viewer. Welcome back for new business this month. We have a few releases coming out in February and March. I guess this date has already passed by the time this airs, but on February 2nd, I do want to call out, it's not a classic horror film, but it's a new documentary about horror in black, the black exploitation horror movies. It's called Horror Noir, A History of Black Horror. I watched it on Shudder and I yeah, enjoyed I did. Yeah. And they, I saw the, the first version and then they added like extra footage or something in like, like a series or segments mm-hmm. or something, which I haven't seen all of those. I don't oh, think. I haven't either. Uh, I enjoyed the documentary. That was a, yeah. it was a fun documentary. Yep. February 23rd. This kind of puzzled me castle of the creeping flesh from 1968 is coming out from severin and i showed you that i have that but i believe with severin that was probably a pre-order in a special case or something and the general release now is coming out on february 23rd yeah there, there's two versions yeah that's why i first thought because i i saw that and it's coming soon and then i was like well wait a minute how did he have it and then i looked and it was like yeah you had the slip case cover was the Limited edition, which I think they still have. That movie's on my radar. I shouldn't because I've said I'm going to buy less movies. Come on. I say that every year. doesn't happen. I have a sneaking suspicion there. Well, I say this. I don't know that there's going to be as many coming out. It seems like there's already drying up a little bit. Well, they're doing deep dives now. I mean, they're starting to really kind of venture into some of the lesser territories but there's stuff coming up this year i mean we've got uh and i'm sure you're going to mention santo here in a minute is coming out not but you can oh you're not well then i will uh (laughs) santo is coming to blu-ray for the first time on february 9th i don't know the studio is putting it out but it's santo in the treasure of dracula and this is a the adult version of this movie. This movie was, they made two versions, one black and white, one color, I think, but definitely one that was like a regular Santa movie. And then one with some extra sexy scenes. And I believe this is the movie that Santo didn't know they were doing that. And when he found out 
He wanted all copies of it destroyed, but they weren't. This is actually the first time it's getting an official release. And then later in the year, Kino Lorber uh, will be releasing the first two Santo films, Santo versus the Evil Brain and Santo versus the Infernal Men, which I'm looking forward to that because, again, we've never had... Well, there have been some official Santo releases, but a lot of them didn't have the subtitles. I think most of the ones that had subtitles, I'm not sure how many of those were legit releases or not, never had Santo on Blu-ray before, though. Santo and the Treasure of Dracula. I saw the regular version of that. It's not bad, actually. It's pretty good. Hmm. Uh, Santo movies kind of are either good or kind of good or they're a mess. And that was kind of in the middle. March 9th, we got a triple header from Mondo Macabro, Blood Ceremony from 1973, the Paul Nashi movie Panic Beats from 1982, and then something called Queens of Evil from 1970. My copy of Panic Beats uh, is in the mail. I got the limited edition back in October. It's been so long, I had to look in my email. I searched Mondo Macabro, and I had I ordered both Blood Ceremony and Panic Beats did not remember at all that I had done that. Has your copy shipped yet? No. Oh, I don't know. I got an email actually that said it shipped. They said, uh, and you know, this is just kind of, it's sad when I see this kind of stuff because this is kind of like our community, but they've had to put out a couple things on Facebook telling people basically cool your shit. They said, this is the largest production that they've ever done because they sold out and then they did additional copies of the limited editions you know as with everything the pandemic has just kind of delayed some stuff so they're like i guess people were complaining when january 1st hit that they didn't have their movies yet so they had to put out a post and said we said the movies would be shipped in january there's lots of days in january it's coming you know, and people, I guess, were already filing like complaints with PayPal and asking for money back. And so they had to come out and say, come on, we're rushing as quick as we can. And so then they put another thing out that said, here's a stack of envelopes where they're starting to ship and just hang tight. This is the largest we've ever done. It will take a while for everybody to get their get their copies. It's sad that within our community that there's just people that, that are like that. And it kind of, I think it's a, it's happening more and more just impatience. That just kind of made me sad that that's happening in our community. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be. Everyone should have a little patience, especially considering where we're at with the pandemic still going on. It's not going away anytime soon. And mail delivery is still very much backlogged. I just read today places back East, they said are still delivering Christmas packages. There are some major mail problems in some hubs, especially like the Baltimore area, where if you get mail in those areas, you're lucky. Mm. You know, I, I and I see people talk about that on Facebook, how you know they they waited forever for packages and, and especially stuff from the UK because of Brexit, there's all sorts of issues. Uh, I know you got a package. We're gonna be talking about that. So you can kind of toot your horn or I will toot your horn or whatever. I'm surprised you got that as, you know, as quickly as you did, because I know there's a lot of other people are having problems getting stuff from the UK. 
patience, people. We are in the middle of a pandemic. It's not going away. Just well, let's not be sad. Let's be happy and celebrate these February and March birthdays. Yes. We have John Williams, aforementioned, born on February 8th, 1932. We have David Seltzer, who wrote The Omen, born on February 12th, 1940. I mentioned him because we did an episode on all three Omen movies. We have Ms. Joan Bennett from Dark Shadows, born on February 27th, 1910. And then we have Mr. Lionel Atwill, born on March 1st, 1885. Our most popular episode that we have recorded was our episode about Lionel Atwill. Well, and hopefully we can come close to that. We've got some interesting ideas coming up in the next uh, few months, and one in particular. I think Lionel Atwill was... Interesting to a lot of people because he's not Boris Karloff, he's not Bela Lugosi, Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, Vincent Price, but he was in a lot of movies and there was some interesting stories to tell. Definitely set the bar rather high. We've got some things in cooking right now that may uh, may come up to that. Yep. And then anniversaries of movies released in February. I don't have any from March. February 11th, 1971. Who slew Auntie Rue with Shelley Winters? And we've talked about that movie on our show. February 14th, 1936, The Gollum. And this is the French version. I we didn't review it proper, but I believe you talked about that. Yes. On our show. And our sentence. Les Golem, I think is. <laughs> oh, excuse me. Yes. And then on February 27th, 1942, The Mad Doctor of Market Street, speaking of Lionel Atwill, that was one of the movies we talked about in the aforementioned episode about Lionel Atwill. Did I miss any of those? Did we catch everything? I, I think you caught everything. I want to give a special shout out to you. I know you won't do it yourself, so I'm going to do it for you. You got another book out. You've got a library, basically, of appearances. Uh, and that, that's so cool. You got in the door at We Belong Dead. And between you know your book appearances and magazine appearances, you, you've got a nice stack of, you know, th- there's the Jeff Owens branch of my personal library. <laughs> You're in another book from them that they just put out called Giant Monsters of Filmland. If you've never bought one of these books, always say, you know, you're going to pay a little more for them. And unfortunately, talking of the UK, shipping from the UK is a little bit higher right now. But these are top-notch productions, 360-some pages, slick, color, they're, you know, larger size, well, well worth the price and a great addition to the library. What do you, in this latest book, what films or what do you, uh, topics do you talk about? Putting you on the spot. I know, and I write those so far ahead of when they actually get printed. I I do know I write about the giant claw, defending its honor as as one of my favorite giant monsters. Well, I certainly uh, encourage everyone to check it out. They are limited edition, more or less, because they don't produce as many of some of the books. Although I think they did an extra run on this one. I think maybe I've I've lost track because they kind of like they reached a point there for a while where nothing was coming out and now they're just kind of kind of cranking them out a little bit and the magazine especially uh they're almost on a monthly schedule with the magazines 
And I will say they put out the We Belong Dead Hammer special. And I think I even said on here, I was a little disappointed I didn't have the opportunity to participate. Well, I looked at the other day and that's a compilation. And I actually am in that for the thing I wrote about Cash On Demand that was in one of the books. The website, I believe, is webelongdead.co.uk, I think. If not, I know that I just did a post on January 28th that provides the links and and where you can go to order your copy. Do it today. They might be gone tomorrow. They generally don't do reprints. So if something sells out, then it's gone. 70s monster movie memories is something I still didn't get even on the reprint. It ran out very quickly. That remains elusive. Remains one of their most popular books. Congratulations. Thank you for mentioning. Thank you for posting. I guess this will take us into the what are we doing part of our show. And I'll just go ahead and finish up. I wanted to mention that. You've got appearances on the Mike Douglas show and Merv Griffin coming up, don't you? No, no. On the blog, classichorse.club, same old, same old. Uh, I did watch a pair of interesting movies, Devil Times Five and The Devil's Wedding Night, which will have already been published by now. And then coming up in March, I decided the movies we talked about on Nightmare Junkhead podcast each Monday in March. I'm going to fully review each of those four movies. That's cool. It'll give me kind of theme. We're still in the 70s for TV movies. On DC Comics Guy, I'm writing about Man Bat, which is kind of horror related. I love those. Those are some good stories. That'll be a fun series. I, I haven't read your second one, but I did read the first one. Got a lot of Man Bat's appearances, but not as many as you. So it'll be fun to kind of go along that journey with you. So what have you been doing? January has been kind of quiet, but things have kind of picked up a little bit. I uh, doing the uh, OTR Wednesdays, back to doing old-time radio, picking out movies, did the Canterville Ghost this past week. My episode of the Diecast uh, movie podcast on the Beastmaster uh, posted this week, recorded that last summer. So when you listen to the episode, here's kind of peeling back the curtain a little bit. Keep in mind that apparently where Steve and Ben and Michaela were didn't have air conditioning. And I don't know if he mentions that on the show or not, but before we even got to recording, Steve and I were chit-chatting and kind of catching up and talking as you do. And then finally, Steve was like, we got to start recording because apparently like Ben and Michaela, who really weren't involved in the conversation at that point, were like sweating to death. Keep that in mind as you listen to that episode. And it was done months, almost, what, six, seven months before we lost Tanya Robert. Unless in post-production, that's mentioned. Um, Yeah, there's not going to be a mention of her passing. That's gone live after we record this. Going to be watching The Space Children tonight. That'll be the February movie I'm going to take a look at for the uh, Mimiverse audio cast. And uh, trying to think, yeah, I mean, nothing other than that. I mean, nothing for Dreg Media right now. I've got a few other articles that are still kind of percolating. I have, I need to kind of watch a few things. And I think as we get probably late winter or spring, some of these articles are going to start popping up. Uh, Movie related, not necessarily sci-fi or horror, but some stuff I've talked about, like the Dirty Harry movies. I want to finally get that series going. I need to watch those last two movies. I can tell you there will probably be an article on Bruce Lee coming up. I did finally finish that box set this past month. 
I struggled through Game of Death 2. Anyone who's a Bruce Lee fan knows that movie's a mess. Uh, it took me a couple of viewings to make it through that one. Uh, that's a Bruce exploitation film. Uh, that's another whole subgenre. Post Bruce Lee's death, there was a lot of actors basically pretending to be Bruce Lee in one fashion or another. That's kind of what I've been doing over at uh, kccinephile.com and monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. Marvelous. How about telling us what we're going to do next time? Well, we, uh, we've got some fun stuff coming up. The next three months, we are going classic. You know, we've been kind of dabbling in 70s, and, and uh, we're going to kind of go back a little ways. We're going to dive back into the 40s and 50s. For next month, as I put on my glasses, we are going to be doing the Inner Sanctum Mysteries, all six movies, which will probably still be shorter than this episode. Uh, <laughs> There was a lot to talk about the disaster films. These movies we'll be covering uh, span 1943 to 45. Calling Dr. Death, Weird Woman, Dead Man's Eyes, The Frozen Ghost, Strange, Confe- Con- Strange Confession, and Pillow of Death, all, of course, starring Lon Chaney Jr. This really came about because I lucked into getting the Blu-ray set for a very cheap price after a debacle from Deep Discount DVD posting a sale and then not honoring most of the sales. A week later, they had a sale that popped up on Amazon because they sell stuff through Amazon. It was gone like after 10, 15 minutes, but they did honor those prices. So I got the the new Hammer collection from Mill Creek and uh, the Inner Sanctum Mystery set collectively for $48. Uh, really good prices on both of those. And again, they arrived. So I was pleasantly surprised. So we're going to be uh, talking about the Inner Sanctum Mysteries movie series and dabble into a little bit about the radio series. And uh, I know there was another movie from 48 called Inner Sanctum that I'll probably watch as extra credit and talk a little bit about as well. But that is what is coming up. So next month, that's your homework, folks. Watch the Inner Sanctum Mysteries uh, set. If you don't have it already, it is available on Blu-ray. Is it from Mill Creek? Yes. Get it from Mill Creek. Shop around because there are some cheap prices out there. Other people have been running it on sale as well. I'm interested to see what the extras are on that one. I think there's a Ballyhoo Productions documentary. Those are always fun. That is what's coming up in the month of March. Richard mentioned homework. So yeah, watch these and give us some advanced feedback. Participate in the show. Give us a call at 616-649-2582 or send us an email at classichorrors.club at gmail.com. Join the Facebook group page. No excuse to not participate some way in the podcast. We would love to have you. It's a club. Clubs have members. Members participate in meetings. So please, we invite you to join us. Absolutely. We are going to go out on the non-chart-topping, non-award-winning Beauty is in the Eyes of the Beholder by Tom Sullivan. He actually made it in 1975, and then it was used in the 1977 movie, Airport 77. This is not available on Apple Music. The only place I could find it is in a very crude, rough YouTube video. So the quality of this will not be good, but we could not 
do the episode without including it. Consider the source material, you know, there's high definition isn't going to help this much. We will see you next time. Thank you for listening. Stay safe and take care, everyone. Beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. And that's what I want to do. Hold you in my life forever. And just keep on loving.